God, those communists are amazing. Okay, everybody. Welcome back again to Turn Left's podcast. I'm Mike here tonight with Sterling, Cosper, and Ward. Uh, we don't have Jaren with us this week. He's a little busy. But so since we didn't have the, the brain guy on tonight, we figured we would do like a less serious episode. So I had the bright idea of asking people in our Discord and on Instagram for any of their questions that they may have as newbie leftists, baby leftists. And oh my God, was that a bad idea? That <laughs> no, was actually a good idea, but we got so many more questions than I expected to get. So many, in fact, that I think we're definitely going to have to do a second episode because I spent about four to five hours writing up responses to all these questions today, and I didn't even get through half of them. So I think we will definitely do a second episode in the near future, uh, hopefully coming up soon, and then get to the rest of these that we can't get to tonight. But that being said, let's just get started. Does anybody else have anything they want to uh, say before I just jump into the questions here? Um, when you said that Jaren is a little busy, I thought you were about to say Jaren is a little bitch, and I thought that would have been hilarious, but you know. Oh, shit, I should have said that. Damn, I didn't think of it. That would have been funnier. Jaren's a little bitch that he'll be joining us tonight. Suck like it, bitch. Jaren. <laughs> like a punk ass. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking bitch, Jaren. <laughs> Why do we even put up with him? <laughs> uh, yeah, let's pretend he doesn't carry this fucking podcast. <laughs> Disclosure, Jaren is the greatest among us, and we absolutely <laughs> love him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously, I, wouldn't know what, I don't know what we'd do without that guy. Um, all right, so anyway, let's just get into these questions here. So the first question we got, and I did lump some of these questions together because some of them were very similar, so I would I'll just put them together, uh, try and kill two birds with one stone here. So the first question is, how would you explain to someone how you would still get luxury items under a common society? Like, how would you get it? How would people make it? How would people get the materials, et cetera? Example, iPhone. Um, and the second question that falls right in line with that is, what would communism in modern society look like? Would every job still exist? Would tourism exist? Smartphones, et cetera. Everybody's worried about their iPhones, man. These people are fucking addicted to these things. <laughs> I would say that like I'm not. Yeah, the first thing I wanted to point out was like, yeah, tourism is gone. Under communism, it's stri- strictly nationalistic. You're confounded to <laughs> internal borders. You're not allowed to leave. <laughs> Especially sex tourism. That shit's out. Yeah, the, <laughs> the iPhone thing. You forgot to say Venezuela. Yeah, iPhone Venezuela. Well, see, that's the thing. Venezuela is gone under communism. Everybody would think that, you know, Venezuela would just take over the whole world. But no, it's actually the opposite. Venezuela is gone. Yes. Venice who? So uh, my response to this, I think that there would be a lot fewer luxury goods. Uh, and yes, a lot of jobs would disappear. Jobs like CEO, jobs in advertising, thank God. Lots of management jobs. The entire rentier class, these are people who make money just from owning things. So like landlords, property owners, anybody who makes money passively, passive income, people who don't work. The trade-off is that everyone would be guaranteed a basic standard of living at the very least and not have to worry about their basic needs being met. And so I would refer people, I'm going to refer, I'm just a warning up front. We're going to be hammered because I'm going to rep- recommend so many goddamn podcasts tonight. Like, don't even bother drinking every time I do. I mean, kind of. You, no, you, you have to. That is like a commandment of our podcast. Anytime Thank another God, my podcast. Are short. Anytime a podcast <laughs> is recommended, you fucking drink. And if you don't, <laughs> then turn this shit off. You're not allowed to listen to it. Unless you're an addict, then don't then yeah, not then, encourage anybody to relapse. Then we, we understand. Sponsored by Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I know, right, dude? Um, so that being said, yeah, I will refer people to episode 21 of Proles of the Roundtable. This was called The Rise of Life in and Fall of the German Democratic Republic. That was one of the, like a particular episode for me that described what life in a communist society would look like. And so they described a society with a lot more security and democracy in the workplace. 
Everyone was guaranteed employment. They had lots of social safety nets and programs. Uh, for instance, state-run services that helped families with getting groceries, childcare for everyone, things like that. Women were given much more opportunities in education and employment and professional careers. And they could divorce their husbands much more easily than they could in the capitalist West. And they were provided with things Dang. like housing and financial assistance if they did. I know, right? Like, that was one of my favorite lines from that whole episode is they were like, you could just yeet a whole ass man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to add on to that. They had better orgasms, too. Well, yeah, I'm getting there. But, um, oh, that, I mean, that's a that's don't overlook it. I mean, that's just huge. So, uh, what was I saying? So, they could divorce their husbands a lot more easily than women in capitalist countries could. Like I said, they were provided with housing and financial assistance if they did. So, they weren't coerced into staying in abusive relationships, which still happens a lot today in capitalist countries. If a woman is financially dependent on her husband and she has to think of her children's security over her own well being, for instance. So they also had a lot of programs for giving families cash when they had children and lots of paid time off of work for both parents. And it was up to a year or more, if I remember correctly. So this easing of the burden on families and actual material measures taken towards equality are why people still talk about how couples had better sex lives. Cosper said women had better orgasms. And this is just because of how much less stressed they were and how like just less under the gun of capitalism they were. And there are also a lot of the less obvious effects, like not being advertised to constantly. So you're not made to feel insecure in yourself and being told that you need to fulfill yourself with all this mindless consumption of goods. Sterling, did you have a hand up? Did you have something? A minute ago? Oh, no, I was just standing in solidarity with the comrades that oh, okay. are coming better. <laughs> <laughs> communism has been more orgasms. Exactly. But I mean, this is all to say, when I think of a communist society, I think of communist states the way that we would think of intentional communities here in the U.S. or quite literally communes, but extended across an entire country. And so if you've ever seen one or you know anyone who's been in this one of these intentional communities or something like that, they seem weird from the outside. And a lot of times they are because here they're typically based on religion or some other kind of vague ideas about how they want to structure a utopian society of their own. And a lot of times, you know, they fall prey to some charismatic leader and become kind of cult like. But I think the difference is that a communist country is based on a much more solid ideological and theoretical background than any kind of religious or kind of new agey community like you would have here. And so it's going to be more successful just for that reason. Uh, but going back to the GDR, Prolspot, again, gives a great description of why people wanted to leave and how Capitalist West took advantage of this narrative, but twisted it around. So I'm not going to deny that people in the GDR, like on that side of the Berlin Wall, wanted to get out. But the reason is because they still, like these people were not ignorant about life in capitalist countries. They still had access to media and communication from capitalist countries. Even if that was strictly limited, obviously that's still going to happen. So a lot of them believed the images that they saw of what life was like in capitalism. Like imagine if you just saw the stereotypical image of the suburban family with lots of luxury goods. Um, like imagine seeing sitcoms today where everyone lives in these super nice houses and you never have to see them go to work or struggle to pay bills or any of the stuff that we actually deal with on a day to day basis. Like what's up, Zoe? Yeah, I watch that setting in a capitalist country. I'll watch like a fucking TV and I'm like, God damn, that shit looks great. That's nothing. But like the difference my life. is, you know, that it's not real. Like you yeah, can yeah. understand like that's this is a TV show. But like yeah. imagine if you just were completely outside of. Yeah, this country and like you might be fooled into thinking that's just what life is like for everybody, especially if that's the image that your country wants to portray all the time. And it's funny if, if you watch like some people who do come from other countries who do come from, you know, even more socialist leading countries, they do have this picture of America. And when they get here, they're like, oh, it's not all like living with the Kardashians. Like this is yeah. nothing like I expected. Like there's that. uh, What's that uh, show about the people who get married on like the K-1 visa? It's fucking hilarious. 90 Day Fiance. 90 Day Fiance. Dude, I, <laughs> dude uh, oh, my God. I, I will binge that shit so hard. 
And it's like so many of the people that come over on 90 Day Fiance, they'll come from like Mexico and have this picture of what it's going to be like living in the U.S. And they get over here and they're like, this is way worse than where I was. There was one guy from, I, I forget exactly where, but his name is Muhammad and he came here and he was just like, this is just not it. There just isn't shit to do in Ohio. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> He's not yeah. wrong. One thing people don't really notice about our country compared to others is we are extremely antisocial compared to other countries. Most mm. other countries are very social. Not everyone has three cars in their driveway. People do work down to far, uh, walk down to farmer's markets. People do, you know, trade with each other, you know, like handmade goods and stuff like that and that, that's very common in other countries and it creates this sense of community that we just straight up don't have here every person we buy something from is a big box store we don't know mm -hmm. anyone we purchase from no i mean that's a, you summed it up really well that's exactly what i'm getting at when i compare communist states to like an intentional community or like a small close-knit society that's what it would be like but again extended across an entire country and just to clarify that like going back again to the proles pod episode so, like I said, you could easily be duped into thinking that life that you've seen on Western media or capitalist media is exactly what life in capitalism is really like if you're not actually living in it. But when these people left the GDR or after the GDR fell, they were disappointed with the reality. They talk about people being surprised that they couldn't just leave work in the middle of the day to go take care of the things that they needed to do and the terrible conditions that they had to work under. Like the workplace safety was nowhere near as good. Their workplaces weren't democratic. Like. In the GDR, you could literally fire your boss. If enough of your coworkers got together, you could fire your boss. And if they were found guilty of doing like this shit that you said that they did, they would literally go to fucking jail. Like imagine having that kind of workplace control. I could only dream of it. But so obviously the lack of state assistance was one of the big things. They had kind of taken that for granted in the GDR. They didn't realize the trade-off that they were making until it was too late and they regretted it. And this happened a lot. And there's lots of examples today of even of people defecting from the DPRK to South Korea and then wanting to go back. And a lot of times they actually do. But all this is to say that while no communist state has ever been a perfect utopia, achieving classless, stateless, moneyless society, they have the benefits and they're not the dystopias that you've been led to believe. The way you've typically been told to imagine it isn't even realistic. And it often relies on thinking of the citizens there as these brainwashed automatons. And it often is rooted in racism or just xenophobia. This is something that I wanted to touch on a bit, too, is like there's this weird type of cognitive dissonance that people here have where they simultaneously imagine that people by their nature want to be free and will rise up against tyranny when they're oppressed, but also that they're able to completely be subjugated by a dictator. And that's what they imagine is going on in communist countries. <laughs> if you ask anybody about like the impression that they have of the USSR under Stalin or China under Mao or even now under Xi Jinping and of course the DPRK, the things that they will tell you just don't even seem realistic. And that's kind of what I want to get across to people is like, listen to both sides of it and decide for yourself, which seems like a more plausible scenario. But the way that people usually resolve that is by saying that the U.S. is free because we have guns and that the people under communism were able to be controlled because they didn't. And this is usually the same people who call the Nazis socialists because they also disarm the citizens. So it's like a dishonest state to begin with. But if you just think about it critically, that kind of childish image of an entire country, it doesn't even make sense. And it's certainly not something you could keep up for decades and also provide the conditions that we see in places like Cuba that have a lot better markers for health and happiness than even the U.S. And not to mention, it's a farce to pretend that people in the U.S. are the bastion of freedom when like cops are straight up murdering people. Like they're already preparing to let this guy Derek Chauvin off. We can see that they're like mounting up the defenses because we already know what's going to happen and they know that the protests are going to happen because of it and nothing's going to change. But like here, so you have, like, like I said, the cops murdering people, healthcare is atrocious, 
We have like record food scarcity and inequality. And every few weeks, there's some totally avoidable crisis like in Texas and people still aren't rising up like they imagine that they would. So again, it's just ludicrous. But basically, you're being told all these horror stories about countries. And it's so that you don't get any ideas about an alternative to capitalism and don't dare to demand things that are basic entitlements to the citizens there. Because it all leads to this boogeyman of socialism, which is only scary really to the wealthy people that control every bit of the media and just basic manufactured consent. Oh, I also will recommend a couple other podcast episodes while we're at it, so go ahead and get your drinks out. Again, Prol's Pod, episode 39 on modern Cuba, uh, episode 37 on Soviet democracy, episode 26 on the DPRK, episode 19 on modern China, and episode 11 also on the DPRK. Um, I like to recommend podcasts because obviously anyone listening to this will probably be okay with that form of media. But also, they cite their sources and further reading in their show notes, so that's useful if, if you'd rather read about it, if you want to like check up on the sources. And again, this isn't to say that you have to 100% believe everything I'm saying here or everything in those episodes, but rather that you should just hear both sides. And I hate to play the both sidesism, you know, kind of game, but like really, you should just hear both sides of it. Like you've already been hearing the capitalist narrative, so hear the Marxist perspective and then decide for yourself which makes the most sense. And for me, I've heard the narrative from Western capitalist media about existing socialist countries, and I've heard the Marxist perspective. And to me, it just makes sense that like, they are not perfect. These are not perfect countries, but they're still making a lot of progress toward achieving real material gains for their citizens in terms of living and working conditions. And also that they're able to do this in spite of constant meddling, sabotage, or outright aggression from capitalist countries, mainly the U.S. And that makes a lot more sense to me than the idea that there are millions of people living in absolute squalor under some dictator and tolerating it because they're all brainwashed. And also that all the stats we see about people's approval of their government are faked. And people are put in prison for having the wrong haircut or something. Like none of that shit just even makes sense to me. And it just sounds like it just sounds like fairy tales. Just really quick on that point. I mean, you hear things like, you know, 80 percent of the DPRK lives in absolute poverty. And I'm like, what kind of moron would believe that 80 percent of a country would just sit there starving and just be cool with it? Like, that's not that's not how people work. No matter how many generations they go through that. I mean, if anything like what they describe was actually occurring in the DPRK, everyone would be fucking running across that border or everyone would be pulling the leaders apart limb by limb. And that's not to say that everything under the DPRK is perfect. No fucking one believes that. But it's just like you were saying, it's education. Educate yourself on the other sides. You're likely never going to know the exact perfect picture for sure because you're not going to go over there and live for several years yourself as a local. But you can do better to try to understand at least the various uh, sides of it. And I mean, I'm not even saying that I'm a big DPRK you know, a simp or anything like that. But I definitely think that a lot of the things that I disagree with about the DPRK are decisions they've democratically chosen to do. And I believe mm -hmm. that in my heart. So it's like, I can't condemn them for democratically choosing to do anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's why the Prolspot episodes on the DPRK were so eye-opening for me, because they actually talk to people who have been there, and they describe what it's actually like. And it just it paints a much more realistic picture than these crazy, like they literally sound like fiction. Like when you hear what Americans say about the DPRK and it's like, they're backing it up with nothing. Like every time you see like photos of these supposed labor camps, it's always a picture of like a fucking empty field. 
And it's like, yeah, the U.S. intelligence could read your newspaper on your breakfast table if they wanted to through your window with a satellite. Like that's the technology that they have. And you can't, you're going to tell me that they can't find like a definitive, clear picture of like these people being tortured or in these camps or whatever that supposedly exists over there. Like it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Also, you'll see these pictures of this, like, you know, these beautiful constructed uh, buildings in the DPRK that just really show off uh, the ability of some of their architects. And you'll hear people say, oh, yeah, that's beautiful, but no one lives in any of these buildings. Like, what? You think they just built entire fucking cities and no one's allowed in them? It's the craziest shit I've ever heard. Yeah. The same thing they say about China, too, that they have all these empty cities or whatever. It's like... I mean, the only explanation I've heard for why there would be any empty cities in China is that they literally are preparing for expansion. Like, they have plans into the future, which, you know, obviously we can't fucking do here in the West. Like, we just do everything, like, fly by the seat of our pants. Like, oh, shit, Texas doesn't have power? I don't know. Let's scramble and try to figure it out or just not figure it out and let them fucking starve. Like, who cares? Like... Yeah, we have no... We have no empty buildings, houses, or sky rises here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just to wrap it up, lastly, I would say that keep in mind that socialist and communist countries absolutely can be very harsh and punitive to some people. But in pretty much every case that I've heard of, these people were literally fascists in some form, or they're just far-right reactionaries or counter-revolutionaries of some kind. And that's basically the entire narrative of things like the Black Book of Communism, the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, They're either fabricating things entirely, or they're clutching their pearls at these governments being mean to some Nazis, which is consistent with the Western capitalist narrative that Nazis should be given free speech to spew their hateful rhetoric, or even brought into NASA straight from the Nazi regime. Um, while at the same time, every communist state or even organization of any size should be infiltrated by the CIA or just straight up assassinated. So just take that into account when you hear anyone in the West talk about socialist or communist states. Like literally just consider the source, like consider who you're hearing it from and keep that in mind, like who they consider an enemy and who they bring on as friendlies. Capitalism is much more friendly to fascism and far right rhetoric than it will ever be to any kind of even just basic worker protections and rights for working people. So that's all I really wanted to get across with that. Anybody else have anything they want to add to it? Yeah, so. Yeah, um, since you kind of joined these two questions together, I actually also wrote something for both of these questions. Um, So let's see here. So the first question was, you know, how would you explain to someone how you would still get luxury items under a communist society? Like, how would you get it? How would people make it? How would people get the materials, et cetera? Example, iPhone. Here's my take. Uh, People made things long before they learned that they could exploit others to make things. In fact, I would say that, quote unquote, things can be made only under communism and that the capitalist component is the exploitation and the extortion itself, not the thing. Many of the greatest artists of generations long since past died long before their greatness was realized, long before it was celebrated, and in a lot of these cases, they didn't even care about the fame to begin with. People working together across multiple factories to make something like an iPhone, which if you really break down the complexity is pure brilliance. Working together to make something like that is way more communist, hence the word community is relative here, is a more communist process than a capitalist process. Capitalism does not require groups working together. It only requires the exploited and the exploiter. Um, so that that's kind of my thing is, yes, I do believe most of these items like iPhones, like fashion, for example, fashion is an extension of art. Art was not meant to be capitalist. That's something we've turned art into. Yeah, go ahead, Cosper. 
I was going to say something I'd love to touch on in a later episode was the commodification of art and yeah. explaining it through the lens of someone like Walter Benjamin, who is yep. a great aesthetician and does at length discussions on how uh, basically how capitalism and the commodification of art has corroded it to its very core. Someone like Hegel also touched on that is that, you know, we didn't used to just have like a Van Gogh or a, a Rembrandt. There used to be like yeah. a class of people or a group of people who did art that were commonly recognized as artists. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, you know, artist is Van Gogh or yeah. this guy. And now it's where we've almost uh, extrapolated ourselves from the event of art in such a way that we can only experience it retroactively in a time at which it was celebrated more correctly. Which isn't by accident. I mean, think about the capitalist uh, components here. If you were to have like an artist like a Van Gogh, you know, today of that caliber, of that notoriety, and he was not dead, you can't control the value of the products he already has. I mean, he could go on TV and say the wrong thing, and if you've got a painting worth $10 million, it could be worth jack fucking shit tomorrow. There's a reason that <laughs> art... brain is canceled. It, right, exactly. There, There is a reason. Art is safe, it's a tax loophole in our current society, and they only really want to work with artists posthumously because they can control that art and there's no risk factors no one can flood the market with this artist and that artist can't get themselves canceled at least not in the traditional way and there was Dang, one more thing i wanted to say about that is that while i'm saying that that's not me saying that like there are no good artists anymore yeah of course, <laughs> I, of course. there are very good mm -hmm. artists still obviously i just think that the level of celebration we give to groups of people has drastically declined yeah and a lot of people don't even have the time to find these artists that we're talking of or celebrate them properly because you know you get home you just want to fucking indulge yourself in whatever makes you feel better from working yeah 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 i mean while we were kind of summing up i thought about just what i would give is like the shorter answer to that whole question especially in reference to luxury goods because i don't feel like i covered that enough in my very long-winded answer um <laughs> but i feel like you probably would actually have to sacrifice some luxury goods like they definitely would be harder to come by if we had like a communist society but you have to understand that the trade-off you would be making is that you wouldn't be tired all the time. You wouldn't have to work 40 or more hours a week. Your basic needs would be taken care of. I mean, maybe you're of a different opinion. Like maybe you would rather have an iPhone and just still live the stressful life that you're living more power to you. If that's what you really like, then just keep working under capitalism and enjoy it, I guess. But like if I were given the option to live in a country that actually was communist and could offer me that lifestyle where I am more in touch with my community. I have more free time. I can like just leave work at any point to like go run errands if I need to get things done. I maybe only have to work like 20, 30 hours a week and I don't have to worry that my kids are going to go hungry or anything. Like, yeah, that's a trade-off I would definitely make if I got to give up my smartphone that allows me to deal with the depression that I'm dealing with because of the job that I have to work anyway. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think it's a good trade-off to make. What you got, Cosper? I was just going to preface of like, what even is a luxury good in the context of which we're describing it? Good question. Because we're talking about these things uh, like they're so abstracted or something of the nature. I think these things like, you know, a fun yacht ride would still exist. The only difference is it wouldn't be one person in control of it. It might be a community's yacht or something of the nature, yeah. you know, perspectively. Yeah, there, there was tourism in the USSR. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying is I don't think that these luxury items per se go away, but the privatization of such a luxury item would go away to where it would be more expanded upon groups, if we would. 
Yeah, it's like yeah. with with the iPhone, for example. I used to, and it, thank God it's been many years since this, but I used to buy one of the new iPhones every year they came out. And then I eventually was like, this is fucking stupid. What am I doing? <laughs> the slight advantage it gives me is not worth a year of that slight advantage. And most of the advantages, they implement the new iPhone to be able to do something that the older iPhone was plenty capable of, that they use the software to... To prevent it from doing not the hardware so it's like if you think of a luxury item like an iphone in the communist country yeah you may not get a new one every single year but if you got one of these for four years and it was something that could just be updated through the software itself to stay just as functional as a brand new one then you don't need an iPhone every year. I just don't think you really would lose the luxury items like you think. I think it would reframe what we consider a luxury item, like what Cosper's saying. Like, would you get a, a fucking a Gucci belt that costs $3,500? No, because that's stupid. No one would make a $3,500 belt under communism. If they did, it would be the exact same product, the exact same level of craft, and it would cost as much as the material and the labor valued it at capitalism values things very peculiarly yeah. plus if you can't get that gucci belt for thirty five hundred dollars the trade-off that you're making is you get like a month or two of vacation every year it's like i'd fucking take the month or two of vacation than the fucking fancy belt any absolutely day. all right let's get to another question before we spend so sorry go ahead i was just gonna say i love fashion so <laughs> I don't I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I just recently saw your clothes account on Instagram. I didn't even know you had that going. And how cool is Cosper's fashion? I guarantee you he doesn't have a $3,500 Gucci belt. <laughs> oh, no, I don't have anything Gucci. I don't think that uh, Gucci has any good lines. I mean, I like some Balenciaga, but like I, I'm more of a... Let's not get into it. Yeah, I just yeah. I like fashion, but a lot of, you know... I, I don't I don't want to be taken to the guillotine right now. <laughs> All right, so we're half an hour in. We got one question down. All right, so here's the next question. Um, Someone says, competitive capitalistic thought seems to be very deeply ingrained into the modern human psyche in Western society, they preface, to the extent where establishing an anarchist or communist state would require a huge paradigm shift in individuals' thoughts and attitudes, i.e. people would be predisposed to hoard surplus produce in order to build their wealth. How could the proletariat be successfully united to bring about this change? Is such a thing even possible, or would it be idealistic to assume there wouldn't be some attempt to return to hierarchical structure? And that's a very good question. And counter-revolutionaries have always been a problem for every communist state, like reactionaries. Like, literally, they react to the revolution and the overthrow of the capitalist culture. So my answer that I came up with was that, and I'll just preface it, different leftists will have different answers to this. So those of us on the authoritarian left um, would probably agree that this is a huge problem and requires some pretty radical measures to fix. And that's where things like re-education camps come in or any of the more authoritarian measures that libertarian and anarchist leftists tend to not like. So, you know, in my opinion, we have over 6,000 years of indoctrination into patriarchal and ruthlessly individualist mindsets to overcome. So I don't think it's out of line to say that some radical extreme measures would be required to achieve that. And I'd say that those are actually necessary for the future of humanity because the path of slowly reforming capitalism is obviously inadequate. So I see this pattern where there have been proletarian revolutions. They've gone about doing this, but then because there are still powerful capitalist countries, they demonize these efforts and they play on people's sympathies to make it seem like the counter-revolutionaries, the fascists, the capitalists, etc., are the poor, oppressed subjects of a dictatorship, and people fall for it. And this is going back again to the question about life in communist countries and the Western propaganda about them. 
And I think the anarchists would probably, people can feel free to correct me here, but I think the anarchists would also say that these forms of authoritarianism are bad and it should be done differently, either through community-oriented groups or some kind of less hierarchical methods. But I personally don't think that that's realistic, but that's, of course, a hotly debated topic among leftists. And I think that even the authoritarian position is that that kind of democratic community-oriented solution is the end goal, but that the more iron fist kind of method is needed as a transition to that point. And it seems to me that the libertarian left position is to not believe that that transition is actually going to happen and that it's only going to lead to a different type of subjugation. And this is where you get critiques of when people say things like red fascism. This is why the, us authoritarian leftists kind of criticize anarchists and make fun of them for being CIA, because that criticism that they have lines up yeah. pretty well with Western capitalist propaganda. Bad boys. Yeah. I mean, we can tie that into pretty much any existing socialist country, whether it's China, DPRK, Cuba, you name it. Like every, everyone who criticizes them, the criticism that they have is to say that they are authoritarian, to say that they are just subjugating, but they do it with a red flag. So us idiot tankies think it's cool. And it really just comes down to whether or not you believe that they are working in good faith toward building socialism, or if you think that they've just been co-opted by charismatic leaders and they're just as authoritarian and totalitarian as capitalism is. And I just don't agree with that. But if anybody else has a, another take on it or anything else to add. Um, this is real similar to another question that you may have also answered. I, I think I followed up on yours, or maybe you didn't answer this one. There's another question that said, how would a vanguard party be constructed as to avoid the same hierarchy capitalism has? Did, did yeah, you... I didn't answer that one, but we should. Okay, yeah, because my answer is actually really close to what you said as well, and I mm. think it also kind of highlights why I'm more off-left versus lib-left. And I think it honestly really kind of shows that there's not that big of a difference between off left and lib left besides the fact that it's not that we're necessarily more authoritarian than the libertarian left. I think it's more that what we picture as authoritarian is kind of different. And I, let me answer the question. Maybe it'll explain this in better detail. But I think it, my point is there's a lot smaller difference between the off left and the lib left than every fucking thing else. And that's why we should definitely be finding common ground. And so while we all want to be rid of hierarchy, while we all want to be rid of communism, I'm sorry, it's capitalism, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, let me start over. Why, Ladies and gentlemen, why, we got him. Yeah, I'm officially a fed. <laughs> fed confirmed. Knew it. Found him. Finally. God damn it. Why we all want to be rid of hierarchy, capitalism, exploitation, and even authoritarianism or authority, we have to recognize that a vanguard party will have to be authoritarian in the sense that it requires authority and that it will also require a hierarchy because it must be militant to succeed against its enemies. You cannot not be militant, which does require hierarchy in order to fight the enemies, which are the capitalist nations or which is capitalism itself. We all wish we could fight this power with hugs and rainbows, but we can't. Liberals think that we can fight this power with a very specific four-letter word. We can't. They just choose to be blinded by the fact that they're spiraling into an ever-deepening fascist hell world. We have to be smart, 
and keep those in power within the party in check and make sure the party is democratic and make sure that we have the ability to replace them when needed. And I I know we use the USSR so many times as examples here, but they, they really are such a good example. And in the USSR, to me, it did not ultimately fail uh, because it was hierarchical or authoritarian. It failed because after Stalin, they let the leaders make less and less democratic uh, policies happen. And that was kind of the pivot. And a lot of people who don't really study a lot about Stalin, the USSR under Stalin, they may not know this, but each leader before and up to Stalin made the country more democratic than it was previously. So after Stalin is when that pivot happened. Each leader started making the USSR less democratic. And that's the same thing we're doing in the United States. Every time we elect a leader, they consolidate power to the minority and they make it less democratic. And to me, if the USSR would have continued down the path further democratizing their country with every elected leader, they eventually may have found themselves in a world where they finally could put down the tools of authority and the tools of hierarchy, which is also the goal of the alt-left. And I think that's what I'm trying to say here is the alt-left and the lib-left, we have the same goal. Authoritarianism is not necessarily our goal as the alt-left. We just recognize that that's a tool we have to use to get there. And I honestly think the lib left does too that's my take pretty good Casper. did you have anything probably being the most libertarian left of the four of us tonight i don't know about most libertarian left where is this coming from well i mean you're definitely less tanky than the other three of us (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty true i mean uh yeah i don't really have much prepared for that so i i think i can learn from my past self and when i don't have something to say not say it well, as long as we're not, as long as we didn't say anything that makes you want to just jump out of your chair and tell us how stupid we are for saying it, and as long as we're not like misattributing stuff to anarchists and more libertarian leftists, you know, we don't have Jaron here with us tonight to really set the record straight. But maybe when he comes back, if there's anything that he hears on this that really just makes him go nuts, he'll let us know. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, in response to like a competitive capitalist mindset there are going to be people who are very reactant to that, you know, i.e. reactionaries, like you've already mentioned. So the real question does become how to handle that. And I think that uh, you can go in an attempt to something like a cultural revolution with Mao and handle it like USSR did. You can do what you want. I think the most important thing that we need to do now is consider how these things were handled, what worked the best, and move forward with it. That's a good point. I would say that that's probably one of the things I'd like to get across to anybody who comes at us with like the critiques, like, especially if you're an authoritarian left, if you're a Marxist, Leninist, if you're any kind of like of any kind of tendency that people would call a tanky. What you tend to get a lot is people coming at you with these historical events and they say, well, what about when so-and-so killed all these people? Or what about when so-and-so did this thing? It's like, yeah, all right. First of all, that thing probably isn't as bad as you think. Uh, as you've been led to believe by Western propaganda. But also, there is nothing about any of the mistakes that were made in previous communist projects that is inherent to communism. They've always been mistakes that were made by leaders that should be avoided and learned from rather than repeated. Like, let's say you wanted to take the worst criticisms 
Uh, we're going to get to Stalin because that's one of the questions I did answer. But like, let's just assume for the sake of argument that Stalin killed all the Jews and all the gay people and starved all the Ukrainians or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, even if he did that, which he fucking didn't, and we're going to get to that, like I said. <laughs> but even if that were the case, those are not things that are endemic to communism. Those aren't like there's no communist principle that says you have to starve all the gay people and kill all the Ukrainians. Or whatever. Like, that's, not, that's not how it fucking works. And if like Stalin made some mistake because he was a shitty leader and he was a dictator and he got drunk with power, well, then that's something to be learned from and avoided when you go for the next communist project the next time around. That's just how it works. So I really get sick and tired of people like throwing all these past failures at people like us who say, like, we want to just kill half the world and starve everybody. But go ahead, Sterling. Yeah, just because I oversimplify everything and I like to make, you know, just oversimplified analogies that practically aren't even relevant. Um, I, I, I love the, I love what you were just saying. And, you know, I like to think about it this way. If we think about the many, and I mean many, NFL players that went on to murder and sexually assault people, and we thought of it in the same light, we'd be like, oh, well, being a football player makes you a murderer. If you go to the NFL, that makes you a sex offender. That makes you a rapist. I was wondering where you were going with that. <laughs> right, right. And like, it's crazy to think that the action of, you know, a select few people is indicative of the entirety of what it stands for. And so that being said, I can skip this next one for the time being. Let's go to the Stalin one then. Oh, God. I mean, I don't think I even wrote that much about it, but I'm yeah. just going to basically refer people to similar episodes of... Rev left and Pearl's pod. So someone says, explain Stalin if you can, because I was literally blinded by propaganda. And so I'm going to refer everybody again to the Rev left and Pearl's pod collaboration episode. It was called Stalin, a Marxist Leninist perspective. And that came out three years ago. It was like in 2018. So we have to scroll back quite a bit to find it. But then also there's Pearl's pod episode 31. Stalin was a mensch. And basically they just tackled the idea that Stalin was anti-Semitic and they gave a lot of evidence to show that he wasn't. Um, but so both of these episodes, they go really in depth into not only debunking lies that you've been told about Stalin, but also discussing things that he definitely did do wrong. The short explanation I'd give here is that he wasn't some dictator, he wasn't anti-Semitic or homophobic, and he definitely didn't kill millions of people, unless you're talking about Nazis, which is exactly what the capitalist narrative is doing when they make him seem like some kind of murderous monster. They're literally sympathizing with Nazis and kulaks. And for anybody unfamiliar, kulaks were the farmers who resisted collectivization because they didn't want to give up their profits and their position of privilege, and they actually were the ones responsible for mass starvation by doing this. So Stalin and communism in the USSR, they didn't cause famines, they ended them. Stalin actually made the USSR more democratic while he was in power. And he gave Jewish people their own lands in Bairobajan. For anybody who wants to look that up, it's B-I-R-O. B-I-D-Z-H-A-N. And if you look it up, it literally was a, a homeland that he gave to the Jewish people in the Soviet Union. It was almost like, a, like an affirmative action measure because they had been persecuted before and he wanted to rectify that. So he gave them their own homeland where they could be safe if they wanted to go there. And again, so referencing the Proles Pod episode, they talk about how things like racism and bigotry were dealt with in the Soviet Union. And this is actually sort of getting into another question that someone else had that will we may focus on a little more in depth um, if we can get to it tonight. But someone asked, how were marginalized groups treated during the Soviet Union or Mao's China? And specifically in this episode, Pearl's Pod talks about an event where a drunk guy on a bus called a black man a racial slur. And he was immediately detained by the other people on the bus. These are just his own community members. And they basically put him in the drunk tank for the night. And then when he was sobered up, they held a, a struggle session, basically. They, it's where like the community... His own peers, they explained to him what he had done, why it was wrong, and instead of shunning or canceling him or just like ousting him from the community, 
They accepted him once he owned up to it, and he ended up becoming active in anti-racist organizations himself. So I think that's like, that's a solution that not only people on the left could agree with, but people on the right. Because if like people on the right, they're always freaking out about cancel culture, saying like, oh, well, I made one racist remark online, and now I can't get a job, and now nobody will talk to me. And it's like, well, yeah, the solution would obviously be to show you what you've done wrong, get you to own up to it, and then agree to not do it again, and then let you be a productive member of the community again. And that yeah. works better for everybody, because then you actually heal the racism instead of just creating this enmity and more aggression on both sides. But as far as what Stalin did wrong, I forget the exact details, but they talk about it in the Rev Left and Pearl's Pod episode. But there definitely was a situation where he didn't do as much as he could have to help gay people and or to help the anarchists that were fighting the fascists in Spain. And as Jaron described uh, briefly in one of our recent episodes on QAnon, he did treat some people harshly when they expressed sympathies for Israel or a desire to move there um, because he considered them like Western infiltrators. Jaron will know more about that and we can ask him about it when he comes back or anybody can like, look that up because I'm sure you can find plenty of sources about what Stalin did wrong. But my point is that he definitely did do some of the, some things that were not great. And I'm not going to excuse any of these things. I'm just going to, again, recommend that people learn both sides of the issue and decide for themselves if Stalin was some kind of crazed mass murderer who hated Jews and gay people, or if he simply made mistakes that capitalist countries cynically exaggerate to demonize communism and the Soviet Union. And that would be my point of view, is that he definitely made some mistakes, but he's not some kind of monster figure that people have been led to believe. Do you else have anything you want to say about Stalin, Sterling? I actually didn't prepare anything on that, and I'm not going to dive too deep on that because I. That's right. You got a microphone. Now you're an authority. Go for it. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think you did really good there. I did want to add that uh, a new buddy I've I've made on Twitter um, at Durkatsfutter, spelled at D E R K A T S F O T E R, who is the main host on the podcast Plow and Stars. See, even I'm plugging one now. Definitely go check out Plow and Stars. Incredible podcast. Absolutely no comedy. It's just all fucking meat. They've shaved all the fat off of it. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's so much information condensed. It's really like a next level uh, proles the more I keep listening to it. And it's funny because the guys from proles, the guys from Invent the Future, Brett from Rev Left, all these guys follow uh, Dirk Hatzfeter and... uh, Plow and Stars podcast. I mean that that's the people who were actually hungry for for what this guy's been been putting out. And the reason I bring him up is I've actually been talking to him about us actually doing a collab episode on Stalin specifically. So I just want oh, to hell yeah, dude. throw that out there. Tell our fans go ahead and start peeping Plow and Stars and uh, keep an eye out for a collab episode because it, he'll he'll be a great resource. This dude knows his fucking shit so much better than all of us. That would be sick. Yeah, I also forgot to mention when we were briefly talking about the DPRK, we do have another question here asking about the DPRK. Somebody literally just asked, is the DPRK based? And I just said yes. Yes. And, and I, did go, <laughs> I, I did go into a little more detail than that. <laughs> Jewish necromancy. That's all you need. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> uh, I did want to mention that Ward has been in touch with somebody who has been to the DPRK and knows a bit about it, and we're going to try and have them on. We're just still working out the scheduling, but we want to have this person on to talk about DPRK dispel some of the rumors and myths that you may have heard and just give us a better idea of what life is really like there. I'm really interested to hear that myself. I always love hearing about these scary communist countries and what it's actually like. So I can't wait for that one. Hopefully we'll get that one scheduled soon. With that being said, let's get into, anybody else have anything they want to say about Stalin before I move on to another one? Um, he was super hot. Yeah, dude, that mustache is <laughs> that shit. 
Um, all right, let's just do the DPRK question then real quick. So somebody asked, is the DPRK based? And I said, yes. <laughs> but um, again, let's refer to another Pod episodes because they did two on the DPRK. I think I mentioned them already in this episode. I can't remember what numbers they are off the top of my head. But the short explanation is, again, that the horror stories you've heard are either entirely fabricated or they're wild exaggerations of the truth. There have been countless cases of the U.S. claiming that there are labor camps, and the evidence of these is always grainy satellite photos of empty fields, a picture of a school. It's always like defectors that are being paid by the South Korean government to give false testimony. These have been exposed dozens of times. I already outlined it here, but I said it earlier that the U.S. military can read your newspaper. Like, that really is the case. Like, they could spy on you. Like, all the Snowden revelations and everything, it's like, to think that we can't get hard evidence of these camps, it's like, just give me a break. But also, as far as, like, their government system is concerned, a lot of people will criticize it and say that it's a monarchy or even just a one-party state, but that's not the case. There are multiple parties in the DPRK, and the government is actually set up in a more democratic way than even the U.S.'s. I saw a chart, and I posted it on, on my meme page before, but I'd, I'd have to... It'd be hard-pressed for me to find it again, but basically they outlined, like... You're talking about that meme that put them side by side, and it was like on the yeah. right side of the DPRK, there was all these different people holding different positions, and then on the left, it named all the same positions, and then it was like half of them were Trump. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I'd have to look really hard to find it again, but that was basically the case: is that they have all these different positions um, that are held accountable to actual democratic processes, and here in the U.S., those are like the, the president holds like 16 of them. It's fucking ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what does happen is that the party that has consistently worked well and delivered material gains for the citizens there gets very high approval and wins elections a lot. And that doesn't mean that opposition doesn't exist or it's suppressed. It just means that it's actually working for the people. And I think just the fact that North Korea still exists today after the U.S. having killed a third of its citizens, having blown up every building that was more than two stories high, um, just the decimation that happened to them during the Korean War. It's a fucking atrocity. Like, it literally is crimes against humanity. And the U.S. have never been held accountable for it. It never will. But the fact that, you know, the U.S. and the entire capitalist West has completely cut this whole country off from trade and they're still able to survive and actually thrive and do well for their citizens and they're not starving. Like that is a serious testament to the philosophy of Jush or Jushe. I'm not sure how you even pronounce it, but the the philosophy itself is based on self-reliance. That's what it is about. So the fact that, you know, it's working for them is really saying something. Yeah. And Uh, they do it in one of the harshest climates in the planet. Like. Like it's super harsh climates up there. Oh yeah, and they still manage. They're thriving. Yeah, I don't. I don't know actually what it's like. I always see just pictures of them having like these cornfields or whatever potato pride or something. But go ahead, Sterling. You remember that time that uh, one of the North Korean generals said that they wanted to get what was it like fifty nuclear weapons to create a uh, barrier of radiation that would last for ten generations and kill anyone who ever crossed that land, so that the land could not be stolen by invaders. Oh no! Wait, fuck no. that. That was the U.S. general <laughs> who fucking recommended that. <laughs> uh, and it's yeah. like it's crazy. Some of the shit we've done. If you actually just tagged it to another country and started uh, talking about it, it'd be like your face right now. Like as I'm saying that, your eyes are widening. Like oh fuck, <laughs> and then you realize no, we did that. And it's like if you would have done the same thing, if if we would have been like oh shit, you remember that time North Korea fucking dropped two atomic bombs on Japan? It'd be insane how we thought about North Korea. And I think yeah. that's one thing that's paramount about being a leftist is recognizing the faults in your own country. And that's something that seems to be unique about the left. 
And it's like every other position on the political spectrum seems to be that you have to be an ultra fucking nationalist and your country has never done wrong. And see, I'm even doing the fucking Bernie hands. I'm so into this mm-hmm. one. <laughs> Go ahead. Don't you just remember, there's only one country that has ever used nuclear weapons against anyone. Yup. It's the U.S. There's only one country that has hundreds of military bases all around the world. That's the do U.S. You, again. Do so. you think that that is part of any U.S. history curriculum? Yeah. Cosper had something. Oh, it's Cosper. Did you have something? Sorry. I was just doing Bernie hands, too. Oh, okay. Also good. Um, that actually leads me pretty well into another question that somebody asked. Let's see. Okay, so somebody says, how do I argue against things like, quote, who's going to pay for it? And, quote, healthcare should be a choice, not a right. This was a good one. Uh, I could talk Woo! about this one for quite a while. But... So I would just start by pointing out that every other developed country in the world has figured out universal health care. And their citizens have better results than the U.S. and for less money. So it's not some mystery that we can't figure out. It's just that the wealthy people who are profiting off of it, they control the politicians who could fix this. And they spend millions every year putting out this kind of propaganda that makes gullible people think that it can't work here. So the common stupidity and talking points that I hear are things like uh, the U.S. has better quality care, which is not true. People die here for lack of health care all the time. And medical tourism to other countries is very common. People constantly flee the border. They go to Canada for dental care. They go to Mexico if they can't afford some health care here. Or they just fly over to Europe because there's a lot of times where it's literally cheaper to fly to another country, get the medical procedure, stay in a hotel, fly back, than to even just pay for the operation here, even with insurance that you may have. Yeah, even poorer countries like Cuba, they have objectively better results while spending far less. Like just look up the comparative rates of infant maternal mortality, life expectancy. You would think that like an impoverished country like this, that I'm not saying like Cuba is, again, a country living in squalor, but compared to the U.S., they objectively are poorer, but they still have better results with their health care than, than the wealthiest country in the world. Go ahead, Stoney. Just as a, another real world example, uh, if you go to Texas, you'll notice everyone gets braces in Texas. It's extremely common to see a, grown adults with braces in Texas. And why does Texas have so many fucking straight teeth? Is it because the goddamn free market evangelicals are just that goddamn good at dental work? No, they're close to the fucking border and it's cheap as fuck to go to Mexico and get braces because it's actually like basically the cost of the labor involved, which is extremely minimal. I mean, it's not a whole lot of material gets used in braces. So yeah, dental procedures are extremely effective. I mean, the the work, they they do incredible work. Um, But going on to some of the dumber talking points that I hear about healthcare. Um, another dumb one is they say people say that European countries can only afford universal health care because the U.S. effectively subsidizes them because we spend so much on our military that they don't have to. So they can afford health care for everyone. This is something I see in right wing spaces a lot. I mean, you guys probably don't hang out in the right wing subreddits like I do, but I see the stupid shit these people say. So I like to. I like to at least have these in my pocket to argue against them when they come up. I just wanted to note that right now I'm doing the Leo DiCaprio Inception eyes where they're real (laughs) narrow and I'm really annoyed by this question. Dude, I mean, that that one, I mean, the only one, and I didn't address it here, but the only one that aggravates me more is when people on the right will talk about countries that are like the Nordic model. When, you know, when people, liberals here talk about that and say, we should just have the Nordic model and we should have healthcare and social democracy and everything. And they'll say, well, that only works because those are uh, like because our taxes are subsidizing it as if it was universal health care. You fucking dumbass. (laughs) 
Well, so no, what they what they will say is that it's because they use the dog whistle. They say that these are homogenous countries. They'll say uh, ethnically homogenous, or they say homogenous in some other way. And we all know what that means. It means that they're majority white countries. And for some, and they never really go into detail about that. They ooh. never they never explain why you need a country to be mostly the same race for something like universal health care or any kind of social programs to work. Is but that what how they're going to get at is them? some. Do we, do we convert them by saying, look at all these socialist countries, they're so white? <laughs> like that that's how you get white power. Socialism. <laughs> Good luck, buddy. Good luck with that one. My, but Christ. going back to the But like if yeah. you don't mind, my immediate take to that is like that's something that's not even like it's not even close enough to an argument to be falsifiable. It's just below the means at Thank which you, you can even argument. Yep. <laughs> or I don't know. That's just you can't even <laughs> right in their territory. <laughs> well, it, it rests on the idea. Like if you really press them on it, I've never actually you know pressed them on it this far because if if, they, if somebody responds to me with that kind of bullshit, I usually just start trolling them because I know that they're not somebody I need oh, to engage yeah. with seriously. I'm speculating here, but I bet if you press them on it, it would get down to some kind of argument where they want to make it seem like a country that has all white people, everyone is working. Whereas if you ha- start to have minorities, then you have uh, who are not working and you get into the welfare queens argument and you get in some really racist bullshit territory. But going back to my original point, which is about the U.S. subsidizing these people with our massive defense structures that spread around the whole world so that uh, these countries don't have to have defense structures to defend themselves. The point is that no U.S. citizen in their right mind has made this choice. This is not something that we are actually advocating for. In fact, I would say that people on both sides, Democrat or Republican, have been saying we should stop doing this for our entire lives. Definitely for my entire life, I've heard people saying that we have to stop being the world police. And that's not even a controversial opinion. It's not even like a radical isolationist point of view. It's a really just terrible way to excuse U.S. imperialism and also kind of justify your own exploitation and needless suffering for the profits of the already wealthy. The U.S. doesn't have all these military bases to protect anything other than continued resource extraction and domination of other countries. And to think otherwise is like, it's just fucking naive. Another dumb talking point, just to go through them. If we had universal health care, we'd pay too much in taxes. Again, <laughs> don't pull your hair out, but... The point is, we already pay as much in taxes as other countries who have in the personal health care. We just spend it all on military and the police. And any increase in taxes that we did pay would be more than offset by what you save on medical insurance and out-of-pocket expenses. And as for the who's going to pay for it line, we're already paying for it. We're just not getting it. I, I okay. wrote a long article about this in one of my college classes about how the U.S. would save about $2 trillion in expenses if we were to nationalize health care. That's the estimate, at least. Probably a year. Yes. Yeah. Wasn't that estimate from the Koch brothers, too? I got that. So you mean it's like 10 times that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, there are some, like, this is even from, like, Ward is pointing out, sources that have no reason to promote this kind of idea. So, yeah, why not, right? Unless you just like people being in pain. And not only the money, it also breaks up the consolidation of power that the companies in charge of the industry currently have. Yeah, which is why it can't happen. Exactly. The last bullshit talking point I'll get to, they will say some bullshit about death panels or waiting months for care. And that's what they make it seem like in a country with universal health care. Like if you talk to anybody in America about Canadian health care, they're like, oh, well, they're waiting months for operations. It's like, what do you think people are doing here? who don't have insurance or who can't don't have access to care. They're just fucking waiting or they're just not going to the doctor at all. Yep. But that's my point is that that's already happening here. Like we already have death panels. They're called insurance agencies. If you don't have insurance, if you can't afford care, you're just going to die. 
That's what a fucking death panel is. But the problem is that it's only happening to people who are poor. It's happening to people who already don't have a voice in our media, so it is conveniently ignored. Yeah, I mean, the, the very fact that these places have waiting lines is because everyone is insured. Typically here in America, like you're saying, if you don't have insurance or you can't afford it, you just don't get the treatment to begin with. At least these people have the possibility of getting the treatment. And typically when you actually look in the studies, they're a lot shorter of a wait time. And there's a, also some cognitive dissonance going on there, too, because uh, what do you usually call wait time? Here in America, you call that an appointment, right? right. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know where this whole death panel thing is coming from because, you know, to go to the doctor, it's like a three-month wait. Well, well, goddamn, I guess you... Yeah. <laughs> That's what I like that. That's good. That's a very good point. I, I would like to tag on the back of what Mike was saying and kind of echo a lot of it. Uh, but real quick, one thing I do hear a lot, especially with most conservatives and anyone who has had experience with Medicare or Medicaid, they'll point at, you know, a limb or something they have a scar on and say, oh, I could tell you for a fact that Medicare don't work. You know how long it took me to get this done? and you know what the process was like in the half-ass treatment and i'm like so you agree that medicaid is extremely fucking underfunded and we should put our tax resources into medicare and medicaid and actually get you the services you deserve we're on the same page homie i promise like w we both agree your shit sucks because it's competing with the private industry let's fucking fix it dog let's team the fuck up my man Go ahead. Yeah, like with the socialized healthcare argument, I love to throw in conservatives' face, like just throw some nationalism. It's like, you believe America is the greatest country in the planet, right? <laughs> so why is it inconceivable that if we had single payer or universal healthcare, that it wouldn't be the best on the planet if we're the best country, right? Good. We, we crush it, dog. Dude, it, they eat it up. Fucking fireworks blowing off in the background. You don't, you don't think we could do it better than these commie countries? Come on, you fucking yeah. commie bastard. Let's do this yeah. goddamn universal health care, brother. <laughs> We're not better than the UK who has socialized health care. What was 1776 about then? <laughs> Throw that shit at him, dude. <laughs> you think bald eagles set in waiting lines, brother? <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting a little drunk at this point. I don't even know no, what that right. last one was. Let's go on to it. Let's go. I do have something on, on the end of it and not just the rambling I just did. Uh, just to kind of drill in the point you were making. First off, anyone who responds within an intellectual conversation with a line such as who's going to pay for it is not worth even educating. Your job at that point is to laugh at them point at them, tell others to laugh at them, and walk the <laughs> fuck away. Because to me, what's the use in explaining rocket science to a fucking dolphin? It doesn't make sense. If they are actively choosing not to be smart people, then it doesn't make sense to try to give them smart information. But if you do have a person who is genuinely asking, who has a genuine passion to learn, it's actually quite simple. Like Mike says, 
Uh, who's going to pay for it? We are. We literally already are. And we will continue to. Do you think healthcare is free now? If you don't think healthcare is free, then your question is not about healthcare. It's about risk pooling. And that I would recommend you Google risk pooling to learn how that works. You can literally Google every single fucking insurance company that's ever existed <laughs> with risk pooling. It's clearly it's working. It <laughs> it's just the basic concept of it. It's how it fucking works. That's all it is. Who will right. pay for it? Wir werden. Does that mean everyone in German? No, it just means we will. Okay. Cost uh, was learning German, by the way. We to plug another podcast, <laughs> I don't speak German. <laughs> Hell yeah. I do love that show. Oh, it's so good. All right, so somebody else asks, once a dictatorship of the proletariat is achieved, how then do communists go about dismantling the state and achieving a stateless society? Also, how can you have authority with no state? Would those holding authority then become a state, essentially? So I just literally took a whole bunch of stuff from Chapter 4 of State and Revolution. Uh, that's Lenin, if you haven't Solid. If you're not familiar. Just to describe the withering away of the state, because this is a good concept just to get into people's heads. So this is just quoting chapter four of uh, State and Revolution. It's not a very long chapter. I'm not going to quote all of it, but I would suggest everybody go read it. I mean, you should just read the whole thing. It's not a very even long book, and it's free on Marxists.org. Just go check it out. But at least read chapter four. So anyway, quoting State and Revolution. So Engels' words regarding the withering away of the state are so widely known, they are often quoted and so clearly reveal the essence of the customary ad adaptation of Marxism to opportunism that we must deal with them in detail. We shall quote the whole argument from which they are taken. Quoting Engels now, The proletariat seizes from state power and turns the means of production into state property to begin with, but thereby it abolishes itself as the proletariat, abolishes all class distinctions and class antagonisms, and abolishes also the state as state. Society thus far, operating amid class antagonisms, needed the state, that is, an organization of the particular exploiting class for the maintenance of its external conditions of production, and therefore especially for the purpose of forcibly keeping the exploited class in the conditions of oppression determined by the given mode of production, slavery, serfdom or bondage, wage labor. The state was the official representative of society as a whole, its concentration in a visible corporation. But it was this only insofar as it was the state of that class which itself represented for its own time society as a whole. In ancient times, the state of slave-owning citizens in Middle Ages of the feudal nobility, in our own time, of the bourgeoisie. When at last it becomes the real representative of the whole of society, it renders itself unnecessary. As soon as there is no longer any social class to be held in subjection, as soon as class rule and the individual struggle for existence based upon the present anarchy in production, with the collisions and excesses arising from the struggle, are removed, nothing more remains to be held in subjection, nothing necessitating a special course of force, a state. The first act by which the state really comes forward as the representative of the whole society, the taking possession of the means of production in the name of society, is also its last independent act as a state. State interference in social relations becomes, in one domain or another, superfluous, and then dies down of itself. The government of persons is replaced by the administration of things, and by the conduct of processes of production. The state is not abolished, it withers away. This gives the measure of the value of the phrase a free people state, both as to its justifiable use for a long time from an agitational point of view and as to its ultimate scientific insufficiency, and also of the so-called anarchist demand that the state be abolished overnight. That's a $2 word right there, superfluous. <laughs> <laughs> so that's some pretty heavy shit. Um, he does go on. I'm going to quote a few more passages that also kind of clarify it. 
just the relevant parts. Again, I would suggest just anybody go read it and not only read State and Revolution, but then find other sources that talk about it. I know Red Menace definitely did an episode or several episodes on State and Revolution. I know other podcasts have, and they're really good resources for breaking this down into layman's terms, which is very important for this kind of stuff. Just to jump on that $2 word real quick, because I, I know a lot of people don't know that one. A superfluous, that's, uh, pardon me if I'm getting my definition wrong, but that just means above and beyond. Yeah, it means like unnecessary, like okay. extraneous, like, okay, you know. okay, Okay, so I was, I was close. I was close. Okay, so he goes on and says, in the first place, at the very outset of his argument, Engels says that in seizing state power, the proletariat thereby abolishes the state as state. It is not done to ponder over the meaning of this. Generally, it is either ignored altogether or is considered to be something in the nature of Hegelian weakness on Engels' part. Ooh, as a matter of fact, however, <laughs> I know that. <laughs> That's Cosmo's part. Hegelian weakness. <laughs> um, sorry. As a matter of fact, however, these words briefly express the experience of one of the greatest proletarian revolutions, the Paris Commune of 1871, of which we shall speak in greater detail in its proper place. As a matter of fact, Engels speaks here of the proletarian revolution abolishing the bourgeois state while the words about the state withering away refer to the remnants of the proletarian state after the socialist revolution. According to Engels, the bourgeois state does not wither away, but is abolished by the proletariat in the course of the revolution. What withers away after this revolution is the proletarian state, or semi-state. Secondly, the state is a, quote, special course of force. Engels gives this splendid and extremely profound definition here with the utmost lucidity. And from it, it follows that the special course of force for the suppression of the proletariat by the bourgeoisie of millions of working people by the handfuls of their rich must be replaced by a special course of force for the suppression of the bourgeoisie by the proletariat, the dictatorship of the proletariat. This is precisely what is meant by the abolition of the state as state. This is precisely the act of taking possession of the means of production in the name of society, and it is self-evident that, that such a replacement of one bourgeois special force by another proletarian special force cannot possibly take place in the form of withering away. Thirdly, in speaking of the state withering away, and even more graphic and colorful dying down of itself, Engels refers quite clearly and definitely to the period after the state has taken possession of the means of production in the name of the whole of society, that is, after the socialist revolution. We all know that the political form of the state at that time is the most complete democracy, but it never enters the head of any of the opportunists who shamelessly distort Marxism that Engels is consequently speaking here of democracy dying down of itself or withering away. This seems very strange at first sight, but it is incomprehensible only to those who have not thought about democracy also being a state and consequently also disappearing when the state disappears. Revolution alone can abolish the bourgeois state. The state in general, i.e. the most complete democracy, can only wither away. So you guys got that, right? You understood all that, right? What's up, Gosper? I was just going to make a statement that in uh, many a times the... Did, did you write that about, and you can cut this, I was just going to ask if you wrote that about the Hegelian weakness of Engels. That was I definitely did not write that. Yeah, that yeah, was like, okay, yeah, okay. That was uh, Lennon Engels. calling shots, homie. <laughs> I just think it, I don't know, I mean this may be a little retroactive, I just know I've read a lot of Engels denouncing Hegel, so to say that he has a Hegelian weakness is interesting. No, he's not, Lennon is saying other people have a Hegelian weakness when they are uh, basically uh, condemning the state entirely, right? I mean, what I took from that whole thing is like, Lenin is spending a lot of time talking about how people are distorting what Engels is writing about the withering of the way of the state. And they're yeah. probably doing it on purpose, like cynically, because they want to distort it, because they're being opportunists and they're trying to distort Marxism 
for their own ends and twist it away from what its actual intent is. Yeah. But also he tries to go in detail to explain that the understanding of the state withering away as if it's just some kind of thing that's going to naturally happen is a misunderstanding of both what the state actually is and also how that withering away process is going to happen. And the way I understand it is that when you have proletariat dictatorship, when you have people who are the workers themselves and they seize power from the bourgeois, you no longer have the state in the way that people are trained to think of it. And that's why when people criticize socialist states and say that that's just authoritarianism with a red flag and it's just as bad as capitalism, I think is a dishonest take and it's a misunderstanding because if you actually do have democratic control of means of production, even if it's not perfect, you're still getting closer to that point. You're already making progress in that direction. So to then think of it as being just as bad as a group of elites who are wealthy ruling over everyone and subjugating them for profits, those are very different things. And if you actually have people who represent people in positions of democratic elected power, then the state itself is a very different thing. And then if you continue to do that and make things more democratic over time, then the state is actually going to wither away on its own, not because it's just something that naturally happens, but because you have taken the efforts to make it more democratic. And now you actually do have people in control of the institutions and that falls on everything, whether it's the military, whether it's like the production of goods and services for people, whether it's the apparatuses that just democratically control all the affairs of the state, like local government, all the way up to the national government, then you are withering it away because you are giving the control to the people itself, which is essentially what anarchists and people who are anti-hierarchy, that's what they want. So you are accomplishing that goal by using it to your advantage in that process. Uh, Yeah. And just to kind of tag on to that, I think the main point that Lyndon was really trying to make here, especially with one of the lines I really liked, which was taking control of the state for society, is a lot of like ultras, like we were talking about ultras the other day, the ultra leftists that we call ultras, which is most commonly only a derogatory word, but you know, they they kind of own it in the same way we own tanky, which is meant to be derogatory. Um, A lot of people also will refer to them as orthodox communists, who are communists who more or less believe that every Everything has to be perfect and just as Marx wrote it or just as they interpret Marx meant. And Lenin should have, you know, completed the October Revolution and then basically left it to be peace among everyone and everyone just love your fucking neighbors. And I think Lenin's point here is unlike the Orthodox communists, you can't just leave it unattended. Someone is going to institute the state even if you destroy the state the state will return so Lenin took it upon himself to recreate the state but in the people's interest and he uses the word democracy and the state very interchangeably and because it does take the state to implement democracy although that doesn't mean democracy can't technically exist without a state it's very difficult especially after a fucking revolution from a feudal kingdom to actually have a level of democracy without it being mandated and governed and i think that was really lenin's whole point is The only way we make it work, the only way we get to communism is if we use some authority, if we use the state for the people, turn it into a dictatorship, but one that the democratic people get to have representation of. They get to make the the cause for. And I mean, I'm not going to go too deep into that. that. That's really all I wanted to say. No, it's good. I mean, we should probably have some left comms uh, or ultras on at some point and 
get their point of view because I, yeah. I really haven't spent much time talking to them. Yeah. But I would like to hear what their criticisms actually are and like what we would have to say in response to those kind of things. Did you have anything, Cosmer? No, it was just I, I like State and Rev. What can I say? I enjoyed the read when I when I've read it. I've read it uh, again and again. I guess I've given the book out many a times. It, some pretty good stuff, I think. Yep. Yeah, that might actually get to uh, another question that somebody had that I think we're going to answer on the second episode that we do of uh, the questions. But people have been asking for like introductions to theory. And that may be a good one. I think that's fairly digestible. And there are enough resources around, like I mentioned, podcasts that explain it in layman's terms. But there are plenty of resources that will break it down more simply if you do have trouble reading it just on its own. Um, but that may be a good introduction to get into leftist theory. The strip tease, another person I would recommend getting into leftist theory, especially in modernity, would be someone like David Harvey or David Graeber. I think these two authors are very easily accessible, very approachable. I'll definitely come up with a much more detailed list in the future, but just for someone listening right now. Yeah, we're saving the real heavy questions for the the second episode where we have more time to because uh, I only gave us a day to come up with all these answers. So in the <laughs> yeah, second episode, we'll be a little more. I have to explain dialectics, historical material, and all this. I can say it. I just I want it to be you know not academic, mush brain, smooth brain type stuff. Dialectics, unacademic. I would. I can't wait to see how you pull that off. <laughs> Um, before you get too much deeper, Mike, because I feel like uh, the two of us has really kind of uh, speared this one, and I think Cosper and Ward both have some questions they pulled out and prepared. You want to let them uh, pull a, f- a few of their questions and kind of take a lead? Yeah, that? yeah, please do. Thank you, Harry Ward. Ward, I got like two that are like really short because I'm not nearly as good at like <laughs> figuring this shit out. Go for it, man. All right. So one of the questions was, why do we need guns Um, to shoot? Hell yeah. Yeah. They're cool. (laughs) They fucking dope. (laughs) Yeah. That's all I got. No, but capitalism can't be reformed, simply put. And a revolution would need to take place for actual tangible change to occur. And to quote Asada Shakur, nobody in the world, nobody in history has ever gotten their freedom by appealing to the moral sense of the people who are oppressing them. Oh, yeah. And to have a revolution, the proletariat need to be armed. That's not only to have it, but then to protect it, but then to keep it. And this actually, it's funny because it goes back to a lot of the things that people say about American culture, like people on the far right, the three percenters and all the gun guys on the right in America, like. They have some good points. They're just defending a really shitty system that is not anything like what they believe it is. Yeah. Like when they have that, what's that line about after they wrote the Constitution? It's, you know, it's apocryphal. It didn't actually happen. But supposedly like Ben Franklin, some woman asked him, like, what kind of government did you come up with? A republic, man. If you if can you keep can it. keep it. Yeah. And Which, I mean, that is true. Like, Well, uh, to a degree. But just to be clear, a republic is a fictional theory that cannot exist because there's no such thing as a government completely run by laws and rules. Someone has to write them. Someone has to implement them. Someone has to amend them. So on its face, he lied from the fucking inception. He did not give you a republic. Go I ahead. should clarify the part that I'm saying was true was the if you can keep it part. Not the republic. I don't care about the yeah, republic. Which part. You I'm saying immediately failed to keep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
But I mean, that's the important thing is like, they're not wrong when, you know, these people on the right, like the NRA guys say that, what is it? Like the tree of liberty must be refreshed or quenched every once in a while with the blood of tyrants. Like if you do have a communist revolution, there will be forces of reaction. There will be capitalists. There will be saboteurs. There will be counter-revolutionaries. There will be people from other countries that try to sabotage it and ruin your project. There will be people from within your country that try to sabotage it. And you're going to need some kind of authority to prevent them from doing it. And it's going to come with a barrel of a gun. Hopefully those guns are held by citizens who actually want to uphold the communist project and not by some, what do you call it, some reactionaries or some outside forces that are coming in to ruin it. And so you just have to you have to be armed and ready to protect actual freedom, which we just haven't had. Yeah, the Jan 6, they finally, they fucking stormed the goddamn Capitol, the party of guns and fucking liberty and freedom, and left their fucking guns at home. Like, you mm-hmm. fucking absolute idiots. Like, and look you, how that worked out. Jesus Christ. Like, you finally did one thing. And I, I hate to pat anyone in, on the back, and I don't want to fucking tip the FBI off by saying, you know, good fucking going, guys. But But at the end of the day, if your government is being tyrannical, if they are doing things that are not in the will of the people, you should rise up. You should do a fucking insurrection. But you fucking cosplayers that take all your fucking guns, pictures, (laughs) and post them online and fucking left them at home. I just want to say this. You're a bunch of fucking pussies, dog. (laughs) Oh, man, we're definitely going to get docs after this one. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm going to have to do some cuts, little cut, little snippies. Um, so, Ward, did you have another one? Yeah, but it's super shitty, but let's do it. <laughs> yeah, go for it. yeah uh, so the question was, uh, do academic theory-based conversations actually help the progressive movement? Um, I'm not a big theory guy. I'm not going to try to even pretend that like I'm the best at theory or whatever. But like I get really excited for great conversations that are just diving into theory. But um, how I see it is it's like theoretical sciences to instrumental science. The two go hand in hand, you know, theory and praxis. You have to have these conversations, you know, you have to get these lines of dialogue started so we can understand everybody's experiences. And then then we can have action from that. Yeah. Theory informs praxis. Praxis informs theory. I did want to get Cosper's take on that when I saw that question come up. Cosper, yeah. do you want to uh, take a stab at that one? Yeah, for sure. Um, would any of y'all be Marxists without academic philosophy? Nope. I, I think our origi- the originator of Marxism was very much so that type of a thing. Mm. <laughs> so I, I think the, the question is uh, self-evident that, you know, without this academic progression, you, you lack the ability to really do the things that you say you care about. I think without the academic component of Marxism, you don't really have Marxism. Yeah, my smooth-brained take on that question was just going to be that it does, certainly doesn't hurt. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Even if like, having these conversations doesn't help, it doesn't get the revolution done, it doesn't actually start people rising up in the streets, it certainly doesn't fucking hurt. Like I would put it right up against there with that, like uh, the lib argument when people were arguing about not voting for Biden and because you should be doing direct action instead. And all the libs were like, oh, just do both. Go vote for Biden and then go do the practice. And then none of those libs are out doing anything. They voted for Biden and they went back to fucking brunch. But I mean, that is my point. Like, do both. Have the conversations. Try to radicalize people. But then also join the organizations. Do direct action. Do organizing work. Do everything you possibly can in the real world. Ward, did you have any more questions? No. Casper, <laughs> do you have any? 
If you didn't mind, I would like for us to jump into the one about if we think Lennon we get into podcasting. Yes, I actually wanted to do that. Oh, another, yes. that one. Go, I'll, I'll let you take that one. Okay. No, I mean, I definitely think that uh, Lennon would have got into podcasting myself. Yeah, I think so oh, too. Like, I think I, sure. I said a flat hard no, but go ahead. The People's yes. Podcast. Hard yes, yes he would have got into fucking podcasting. He would have been one of the best posters on Twitter of all fucking time. We wouldn't even know about Trump if it was if Lennon was alive right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I definitely think he would have. Just the way he writes, whenever I read him, very much so has like the "no fuck you, I know more" type of attitude about it, which I kind of admire in a sense. And that's what I think would have been really fun if he would have got on a podcast. Of like, oh, if he would have actually done it, maybe no, but. Fuck it, I wish he would have, right? <laughs> I think I might have to change my answer, actually. Fuck it, I know more. So are you saying Lennon is Vosh? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it, I'm stupid. <laughs> yeah, no, no he, uh, Lennon would never use himself to uh, advocate for voting for Biden, sadly. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, hell no. But I, I think the point Mike is probably going to make, and I know he's prepared something, is probably that Lennon would have been out in the streets instead of recording a podcast nailed it yeah let me i'm i'm scrolling through here to show okay here it is so somebody said yeah do you think lennon would have gone into podcasting would i prepared for it i said no i think if lennon were around today he would be a major organizer and an activist and he would probably end up being the leader of whatever organization he joined fairly quickly once people heard what he had to say uh podcasting is fine and of course, it's a great way to radicalize people, give them info they probably wouldn't find otherwise. And obviously, I hope that's what we're doing here. But it's also a really narcissistic thing to do. I can't pretend that I'm not arrogant to think that what I have to say is so important that I need to record it every week for people to listen to, because it absolutely is. But I also think that, you know, what we've said at pretty much every opportunity is that organizing and direct action are the real work. So what we're doing is just more of an icing on the cake kind of thing. It certainly doesn't hurt the cause, but it's not going to start the revolution or anything even close to it. But of course, that's not our goal with it. We're just trying to reach these keys, as I like to say. <laughs> reach these leaves. That's basically, you know, it's a little bit of a self-deprecating kind of response. I, I don't want to be like a fucking LARPer and act like we're the Lenin of our time because we have a fucking podcast, you know, because we met on yeah. Instagram, because we post funny memes and we decided to get together and record our shit talking about leftist stuff. I do hope we're radicalizing some people. I have gotten enough direct messages from people saying that they have been literally turned leftist. So obviously it is doing something and that is the fucking goal. Like I'm not shy about it. Like once again, it's very obvious that what we are doing is putting up leftist agitprop propaganda here. So, you know, um, I feel like being upfront about it at least excuses it a little bit, but I also just feel like, yeah, I, I, that's kind of my take on it is that if Lennon were around, he probably would be doing the actual direct action. Like the guy literally had to stop writing his book to participate in the revolution that it started. Like it doesn't get more badass. Than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's big ahead. Cosper. I mean, yeah, but I don't know. I want to see Lennon TikToks. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, I actually, like I said, I probably kind of wanted to change my answer after hearing Cosper's because I do see where you're coming from. Like, I feel like Lennon probably would be taking advantage of whatever medium is available at the time. Like he was writing books because that's what people were reading back then. And yeah. like, if he were alive today, he probably would be podcasting. He probably would be like the Rush Limbaugh. He would Limbaugh, certainly be you know? a guest. No. He would certainly at least be guesting on on several different podcasts. Yeah, he'd be making the rounds on all the podcasts. Including ours! (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, yeah, I guess the serious take out of, like, as opposed to me just being like, yeah, he would own on Twitter would be like, you know, thinking about the time back then, one of the most effective ways to get your word out was through pamphlets, which he utilized greatly. 
you know, I think one of the most effective ways to get your word out now is through media, social media, like you're saying. Uh, so tweets do it, you know, uh, Instagram, podcasting, what have you. I think any way which would get the word out at which he's trying to communicate, I think Lennon would be the type of guy to approach and commit to. And that's not to exclude, like, you know, he's already writing these books in the time. I think he would be doing that. And like you were saying, the organization behind it as well. And a, a lot of that is also at the credit of Trotsky. And I'm not one to credit Trotsky often, if ever. How dare you? <laughs> right. But, you know, that he really was Lennon's guy for organizing. He was Lennon's guy for getting media out there. I mean, Trotsky <laughs> was a fucking PR genius. I mean, unlike any fucking other. And you're, you're right. Lennon probably would have found another person like Trotsky in today who really was a, a fucking PR genius. And they likely would have recommended uh, media. And, you know, keep in mind, uh, Bernie leading up to his second campaign, he did a podcast for what, like eight months. He ran a podcast before he decided to actually run again. So it may have been a limited series, but, you know, Cosper might have a good point. One thing I'll also add on to that for those who might be a little disfaceful to any appreciation of Trotsky, I'd recommend that they read Trotsky on controlling the commons and how integral that was to the October Revolution. Yeah, it certainly doesn't hurt to read Trotsky. <laughs> Just don't become a stinky trot. Yeah, he was a brilliant writer. I'll give him that. Very poetic. You had something, Ward? Yeah, no, I'm just agreeing with Cosper because, like, as soon as I read that question on the list, like, as soon as I got off of work, I was like, yeah, immediately. Yeah, he'd, definitely, <laughs> he'd definitely be organizing, but he'd definitely be, like, doing podcasts and, like, as much media outreach as he could just to s- spread the message. Yeah. yeah. But, like, no, I agree. He, he probably would. But, like, stay with me here. Like, I, I feel like kind of, you know, like, shitty. Like he might get drunk while he's doing it, like really, really drunk or something, and just like really rant hard as fuck. And just, I just can't fucking stand these, you know. I fucking dude, love just blast just a single idea. dude on Twitter for like oh, four dude. hours. Yes, yeah, no, straight up like, full names and everything. <laughs> Johnny, you fucking bastard! If you don't fucking turn your goddamn living room light off in the middle of the night. Just like to every fucking reply he gets on Twitter, he just pulls it out on the podcast and fucking rails. <laughs> it actually would be interesting. Like, that's a really interesting thing to think about because obviously we're looking at these people through the lens of history where they were writing. And so they obviously took their time with their writing, they wrote by themselves, they edited, and then we get the final product that makes them seem very yeah. wise and well-spoken and intelligible. <laughs> but I would be really interested to see what Lennon would be like if he got a little sauced up and got on Twitter and just, ran, just went off. Like. Yeah, he wanted to cut his grass one night, but he didn't have a lawnmower, and his neighbor's like, oh, no, man, I spent a lot of money on this lawnmower, and, you know, I, I really take care of this thing. I can't just loan it out to anyone. He's like, you fucking bourgeois motherfucker with your right, fucking this zero is like the turn. Time that Sterling has like gone off on like lawnmowers <laughs> and neighbors and stuff. Like, what's going on? What's going on over there in Georgia? Like, <laughs> I just want to borrow Greg's lawnmower. God damn it! <laughs> it's fucking beautiful, John Deere. No idea what he's oh, fucking talking John. about. Like <laughs> that green and yellow, baby. That John Deere. I feel you there. No. I was thinking you were talking about like some zero turn radius Husqvarna or something, but no. Oh my God, the John Deere. Hmm. Does, does steel make lawnmowers? They're just chainsaws. No idea. I think. Yeah, I think they're just chainsaws. I mean, you can use the chainsaw as a lawnmower. I mean, I just kept having the thought. I'm like, this has to be about something else. 
Yeah. Oh, my fucking God. No, I'm just, I'm just drunk. I'm sorry. That's right. (laughs) It's just funny. Like that's because I remember you did that early on in the podcast and I was like, what the fuck is he talking about? And then I just let it go. But like, this has happened enough times. I'm like really curious about what's going on with Lawnmower. What I think it is. enough. and I can't remember exactly where this came from. It may have been Richard Wolf, or maybe it was even fucking Noam Chomsky. Like early in my leftist days, someone used a community lawnmower as an example of communism. And that oh, is okay. just forever <laughs> implemented as in my head as one of the just primary examples. Of I thought this was just like a really personal thing that Sterling no. was like letting out on the podcast. And I was like, yeah, what? that's what I thought no, I think it was that. Chomsky. Yeah, 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 it was. I, I remember reading that as well. I yeah, forget yeah. what book that's from, but it, yeah, it's a kick-ass example. I can't it's like, remember. You know, it, it, fucking, it really was. Why, why really would was. you go through all the trouble of having all these individualized parts when it could serve the whole blah, blah? It's good. Yeah. It's meat. Yeah. Yeah, back before um, Chomsky was a fucking lib. <laughs> all right, let's get into some more questions real quick. Cosper, did you have another one that you wanted to take before I get into any of the ones I have? The one I'm going to bolt down and I will have very at length answers to the questions at hand next time. Okay. Yeah. No problem. Just cause I, I do have like yeah. three or four more at least. I know we only got like another 10 minutes or so we can go long if you guys want. I don't know if you guys have I anything else to do. I don't give a fuck. I'll fucking got run with on. it, dog. <laughs> yeah, we don't have any, we don't have any guests tonight to worry about. We can just fuck take yeah. our time. With Let me it. grab a beer. Yeah, Go you're gonna be it. Let's let's get w- drunk and make the last end sloppy, dog. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be a party pooper, but I will have to leave soon. I I still have an eight, but right. an eight. What is an eight? You haven't. Like he hasn't eaten. Of weed. Eaten. Yeah. Oh, you haven't eaten. Yeah. Jesus uh, Christ. Uh, what, what happened to the fucking mother bird shit? What? <laughs> this ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Uh, so somebody uh, asked so fucking hard with the eight. What is an eight? <laughs> word word boy over here. <laughs> that's that's at least a dollar fifty word. <laughs> Fuck man, I I left school to do this, not the other way around. <laughs> all right. So somebody asked. They said, "Can the Democrat Party be remedied to meet the standards of leftists, or is it hopeless?" And my response to this was, I don't think the Democratic Party can be reformed uh, because it's still a capitalist party. But I also don't think that that means it's hopeless. There's definitely the possibility of getting real material gains through legislation. And this pretty much has to be done through putting pressure on representatives through organizing and direct action, or better yet, replacing them entirely with people who come up through socialist orgs, referencing our previous episode with Shahid Batar. Uh, definitely go listen to that if you haven't already. He had a lot of really insightful things to say about electoralism and its limits, but also what can be achieved and how to do it. Does that count as a podcast plug? Do they have to drink when we plug our own podcast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, I should probably two know drinks. This, this won't even be our, our last episode because we're going to put the read speed one in between these two. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, so we should also just recognize that even when you make those gains, they're pretty much guaranteed to be temporary uh, as long as you're existing within capitalism. Corporations will lobby to remove the regulations and protections for workers. Wealthy people will always find ways to avoid taxes or just outright cut them. And the right will always do away with social programs and keep spending more on military and police. This is just how capitalism works. So while, yes, you can make some improvements, they will always be hard to win and very easy to lose them once you do. And this will never change as long as you live in a capitalist system, which is the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie at its core. So just keep that in mind. Like, yes, I think you can make some reforms, but you cannot reform the party because both parties are capitalist parties. And at the end, the system itself is going to prevent you from 
making material gains as much as it can. And then any gains that you do make will be quickly done away with. Uh, would you have a word? Yeah. Even in terms of like the Nordic model, it's still capitalism. And just because the material conditions of the people in that country are better, what's inherent to capitalism is the exploitation internationally in the global South that is occurring just to make the material conditions better for people in that country. Yeah, it's very true. A lot of people don't realize that the Nordic model still relies on exploitation of the global South, just like the U S does. So even that's not a, it's not a model we should be looking up to. Would you have Sterling? I also prepared something for this one. If if you were done with your, yeah, please do. Okay. And keep in mind, sober Sterling wrote this. So drunk Sterling is going to try to read it. Let me see how much you got in that second bottle. How much you have left in there? (laughs) Yeah. Hold that up. Oh, dude, he's like more than halfway through it. Hell yeah. No, oh my God, I wouldn't be fucking oh. sitting in this chair. You would have passed out like 30 minutes ago. It, it's, a, it's, a pre, it's a pretty steep wine, and I'm a lightweight, so I mean, it, it's definitely, it, it's right in the, uh, about what I would want to drink is how much I've drank tonight uh, to, to really get a good buzz. Anyway. I watched that movie Sideways last night. You guys ever seen that? No. Yeah. With uh, Paul Giamatti and uh, the guy from, I guess, what was that guy from? Wings or something? He was like the, yeah, it's a good movie. It's about wine a lot. Maybe one glass of wine. Anyway, Wings. guys. So. You just really showed your age there. Yeah, I'm old as fuck, dude. I <laughs> like, I was a kid and my dad was like watching Wings and I'm like, yo. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was definitely when I was young. I just saw like reruns of that shit. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> All right, all right. So to add on to Mike's point, and again, I wrote this while I was sober, so I have no idea if this is actually even the point you made, but I wrote that. <laughs> so you you don't have to believe in electoralism to understand that taking a few minutes out of your day to cast a ballot uh, could have some measurable positive outcome. I don't vote because I think we're going to flip some fucking switch and suddenly everything gets fixed. That's what liberals think. And I'm not a fucking liberal. Damn. I wrote this as if I was already drunk. I really, <laughs> I, had, I had some foresight here, dog. <laughs> I vote because if by chance we get more grassroots progressives in office that give other progressives that aren't nearly as beholden to corporations, I, I wrote this wrong. Let me, okay. Yeah, what I meant there is if we pack in more progressives into office, they can act as allies to the already installed progressives that are not nearly as beholden to corporations and, you know, oligarchs as your establishment or corporate Democrats, as Shahid Batar likes to refer them, are. Perhaps this is a long game, And it really only moves the Overton window, but that's better than not moving the Overton window. So my recommendation is don't think your vote is going to do shit, but that doesn't mean you're not adding a grain of sand to a very important scale. And like I like to say, fight on all fronts. That's my motto. Yeah, just to reiterate what Shahid said when he was on with us, he made so many good points about exactly this dynamic. And he made the point that had honestly just never really, I don't want to say that it never occurred to me, but I just hadn't thought about it the way that he said it when he said that he doesn't believe in Kamala Harris, he doesn't believe in Joe Biden, but he believes that they have no strong convictions and they will just go whatever way the wind blows. And so if you can exert enough pressure on them and you do it through grassroots organizing, that will get them to change policies or at least change their stances on policies. And it does stand a better chance of passing through. And he used examples of when they got 
Nancy Pelosi herself to support policies that she didn't support before because they put pressure on her through grassroots organizing. Uh, did you have something, Cosmo? On this subject, all that I have to say is, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm pretty pessimistic about the Democratic Party and shit. I, yeah. From the guy who voted for Biden proudly. proudly. You voted for Biden proudly. too, motherfucker. <laughs> it never got counted, buddy. I never voted. <laughs> are we, are we re- revealing voting records here? Because I'll... We've good. already talked about it. Yeah, we've talked about it. Yeah. I mean, like multiple no, 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 times. No, 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 no. I was talking about like in 2016 when I was oh. like 17 and a half and I voted for Trump as an accelerationist. Well, well, I don't remember the, that. that, 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 that episode. That's kind yeah, of based. Okay. I'm yeah. not going <laughs> to yeah. yeah. I was, I was young. I was like, uh, was, was it, it truly accelerationism or were you just not, did you just not find the left yet? No, I was already reading Hegel and shit like that. And okay, I was like, cool, this is cool. just like the same Hillary Clinton. Are you serious? I think I, yeah, I explained this on the Q and on one, but like, okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, 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 I wasn't, like, I wasn't there for that. I know. I saw this is fine. Sure, I, listen to like, all the I'm yeah. no, I, and I, and I do, but you know, I listen to the podcast while I'm at work. So I definitely miss a, a line here or there. I mean, that's just how it goes. No, I know. I'm just messing with you. The, the gist goes, I was a big Bernie 17 year old. And then, uh, okay. what was it called? That got taken from him. And I was like, okay, well literally nothing is going to change if Hillary is elected and Obama is done so poorly that I, I really could give a shit less. I think maybe this will light a spark under America's ass. And you and were right. To roll the dice. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, we beat racism for the following four <laughs> years, thankfully, because of my vote. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, after a month of fucking Biden and seeing liberals just defend him and bend over backwards to get their heads up his ass, like, I, I, I can kind of understand it. I'm not going to go as far as to say I wish Trump had actually won, but I could see the benefit to it because at least libs would be fucking outraged about something. Now they're just. Fully on board with kids in cages, these motherfuckers. It's, it's, it, hold on, hold on, hold on. It's, it's a detention overflow society. It's, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, come on. Yeah, I just want to go on record and say this. Um, Biden is worse than Trump. I honestly wish that Trump would have won over Biden, and no one is going to assume I'm a Trump fan, but Biden is so fucking bad. He is literally in two months, he's almost hit fuck fucking Trump's record. Like we just surpassed 500,000 COVID deaths. By the time he finally gets a checkout, it's still going to be short of how much uh, Trump has actually given us. I mean, he's fucking horrible. And if Trump would have won, it's exactly like you're saying. There would have been a fire up under the liberals' ass. If we didn't have a a fucking check after two months, we probably would have already seen another fucking capital insurrection. (laughs) I mean, it's fucking nuts. And... I mean, to say back to brunch barely scratches this fucking surface. Let me tell you, as like someone who works in the brunch industry, we're, we're live. Yeah. <laughs> it's really we're, real uh, out here. It is so fucking real. Yeah. Business is booming. No shit, dude. I mean, Good yeah, year to be in the brunch industry. Fucking horrible. All right, let's do another one. And Cosper, um, anytime you need to go, just let me know, and then we'll just do like a wrap up, and then we can continue answering questions if you want. That way, we if just it's get okay. you. Yeah, I was about yeah. to say, if it's okay, if I go ahead and head out. Yeah, just let me get you. Uh, go ahead and uh, plug your Twitch, Cosper. Yeah, my Twitch is Cosper underscore at twitch.com. I read. 
I play video games. I do stuff like that. I would appreciate it if you came and saw me do these things and said hello. Hell yeah. Anything else you want to plug before you go? That's about it. Cool, man. All right. Later. See y'all. Y'all take care. Bye, buddy. Bye-bye. See you, brother. Peace. All right. So that, with that being said, uh, the next one I have is, what are your thoughts on American suburbs, public transit, roads, housing, and transportation in general? Past few days, all I've been thinking about is living in a town where I can walk to school, work, the grocery store, et cetera, and not have to use a car. Um, so my response to this was, I think they're terrible. Uh, they alienate and they isolate people. They make it impossible to have any kind of work-life balance unless you have a car. And they're made to cater to a very particular post-World War II lifestyle that so many people simply don't even have access to anymore if they even want to have that kind of lifestyle. And you can say that this is either intentional or just an inevitable result of capitalism and the way it focuses on individualism and away from any community-oriented government-funded solutions to the obvious problems, things like public transit, public housing, state-provided food and goods, etc., And I think it's both. I think it's both intentional and just a consequence of capitalism. If you live in capitalism, everything tends to get privatized, monetized for profit. And then also there absolutely is corruption and influence used to prevent things that are good for working people. Um, I would advise anyone, I don't have specific sources for this or podcast episodes, but this is something to look into because it's a really, it's a topic you could really dive deep into, but just look into the history of public transportation in the U.S. and how car companies lobbied and outright bribed politicians to prevent it from happening because it would obviously hurt their bottom line. But also things like redlining, uh, white flight from the cities to the suburbs, and the way that states are divided up when it comes to both voting districts, uh, property taxes, school systems, etc. It all ties together into this kind of grand scheme of neoliberalism, yet again, as we harp on so many times, but also there are elements of white supremacy because they've effectively brought back segregation even though it's not official, and overall protectionism that makes sure that corporations can profit from people not having services from the government that we should be getting in return for what we're already taxed. That's my take on suburbs and just how fucking shitty they are and how much I hate them. But ahead, so. I, I really like that point you just made about car manufacturers lobbying against public transportation. Honestly, we should probably do a whole episode on that. We should add that to the list you know, yeah. public transportation and, and the car manufacturers being against it. Very important yeah. topic. Yeah, I mean, there's history behind, behind like the highways and the road systems when they were being built and how... Oh, yeah. This also lines up with um, the history of the electric car. That's another thing people look into, and there's a lot of conspiracy behind preventing that from happening because of oil industry and everything. But Edward, sorry. Yeah, no, just to go off of what you're saying, like how it's used by capitalism to like isolate and alienate people. It's also profitable force this dream on generations of people like oh move out to the suburbs and then they buy a house that they can't really afford and are in debt for decades it's a two-pronged approach that serves a bigger purpose the ultimate purpose of capitalism you know yeah Mm -hmm. i i like how you even threw the neoliberal thing out there because I, i think about um you know, Tesla working on this electric car for 18 wheelers, you know, they want to make a, an electric 18 wheeler that's also self-driving. Like, you know, so we can put a bunch of 18 wheelers on the road that can drive and move freight without the need of drivers. And I'm like, huh, like a fucking train. You're describing a fucking <laughs> train, dog. Yeah. Like, it's like, that's late stage capitalism eats its own ass and finds itself all the way back to fucking socialist shit like fucking trains and it blows my mind yeah not only that it's 
competitive capitalism at its finest because I think there's a Canadian company whose whole goal is to make like hydrogen based 18 wheelers. It's insane. Canada's like another big oil country too. That's actually surprising. Yeah. Um, so that was what I had for that one. I think that pretty much covers that. Uh, let's see. I think we did most of the ones that I prepared. Let me just go through my list here. Yeah, we definitely so, went through a lot. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to get hopefully all of these done that I at least prepared answers for tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, what would communism and modern society look like? We did that one. DPRK is definitely based. We covered that. So based. <laughs> oh, I do have a, a fairly long one on China. Do you guys want to try that one? Oh, let's try it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I didn't read that one, so let's so, be fresh for me. Somebody asks, how would China be characterized? And someone else asked, how is China socialist? So I just lumped those two together. Uh, the answer I prepared is, I'm going to recommend a few sources. Again, Prol's Pod, episode 19 on China, and also the RevLeft episode from March 29th, 2018, which was called In Defense of China as a Socialist State, an interview with Ajit Singh. And also, if you just Google Liberation School five-part class from Opium Wars to Trade Wars, this is the link that I usually give people. It's China's long path towards socialism. Sorry, go ahead, Ward. No, real quick, I also want to plug uh, Bay Area 415's YouTube video about Dang. Oh, nice. Yeah. It covers okay. a lot about it. It's That's a really good I would definitely recommend anybody check out Bay Area 415 on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Incredible. The short explanation, this is, again, just from my own understanding. So feel free to pick me apart in the comments or whatever. If you wanna... So my own understanding is that China is using capitalist production and taking advantage of the West's need for cheap consumer goods to build up their own country and build socialism. Yes, they have for-profit companies and they even have billionaires, but these companies are still subject to the state in a way that we can't even really imagine here in the U.S. where companies blatantly control the government. And the most obvious example I like to refer to is how they actually do imprison or even execute billionaires when they're found guilty of corruption, which, again, is just unimaginable to Americans. Based. Based. Yeah. <laughs> it does not get much more. <laughs> bo, 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 drop the base. <laughs> Oh yeah, where, where's that soundboard? We gotta get. We gotta yeah, get where is our goddamn soundboard? <laughs> I know. I'm still trying to figure it out. Exactly. I, I actually meant to ask you, would you be cool with that? I just kind of brought that up out of nowhere on the um, Q episodes. When I, I mean, test the water. Either it's dope or it's not, and there's only one way yeah. to find out. <laughs> try it out. Um, so anyway, going on. If you read about China in anything that isn't capitalist journalism, they've been making huge advancements in sustainability, protecting the environment. They eliminated extreme poverty just last year as planned. This was discussed in that RevLeft episode from three years ago. And their public transportation puts the U.S. to shame. Uh, they have safer conditions for workers, less food scarcity, and of course, universal health care. The main point of contention among leftists is usually whether or not you believe that they're actually trying to build socialism with these measures or not. And again, this goes back to people in the West often repeating horror stories that they've heard in Western media. So I'd advise everyone, as always, to read both sides and decide for yourself what makes the most sense. Personally, I don't think it makes much sense to believe that over a billion people are being exploited and subjugated and that the figures that say over 90% of them approve of the Chinese Communist Party are lies or that their stats about COVID deaths are faked. That's literally the common Western narrative is that like any good statistics you hear coming out of China are just fake and propaganda from the party. Go ahead, Ward. Yeah, I always love the whole like, oh, oh, that's a Chinese news source. So it's obviously propaganda. Like, it, yeah, it's such effective propaganda that I had to go seek it out. It's yeah. Show me an American news source that is not like beholden to a fucking corporation owned by billionaires. Like, I mean, literally the fucking Washington Post, like Jeff Bezos just fucking owns it. Like, it's not it's even in, it's, it's not hidden knowledge. It's, it's insane. And just to kind of piggyback on that. 
you know, a lot of people, they'll talk about China and they'll throw like little things out here like, oh, well, you know, the child labor, this and that. And what I like to say is, one, no one on the left likes China because they have child labor. Like no one is saying clearly socialism in China is working because they're allowing fucking children to, you know, labor at a young age. Like I, I feel like a lot of people forget that you can be critically supportive, that you can see what another country is doing better than yours and support that and want to implement that into your country while also acknowledging the bad things that country is doing. And also, I also like to think, and because none of us have have spent years as a fucking local in China, you have to keep in mind how things are exaggerated. Like if someone were to come to America and go to like one of these little fucking mom and pop country stores where they almost always have like their little fucking niece running the register or stocking the fucking items, if you were to come in as another country, you'd say, oh, fucking child labor. And you'd put it on the news and you'd say, oh, such and such is committing, you know, child labor crimes. Especially if you wanted to demonize that country and, you know, exaggerate what you've seen to exactly. to paint a bad image. Yeah, I could very easily go to any store within a, a, you know, 20 mile radius. And I guarantee you I could find something that I could film and put on the Internet as child labor and demonize the U.S. if that was my objective. Yeah. So going on with uh, just to wrap up my response. So, like I said, I don't think it makes sense that over a billion people are being exploited and subjugated and they're just like brainwashed to accept it, especially when a country like China, even as big as it is, has less police and military than even the U.S. does. Um, they have a hell of a lot less prisoners in prison than we do, that's for sure, both, by, both in sheer amount and per capita. Like this is not just like per the yeah. like really just the amount of prisoners is less and they have over a billion people. But um, I just also don't think that it makes sense to say that, you know, the approval figures for the Chinese Communist Party are lies or that their stats about COVID deaths are faked. To me, it makes more sense that they do have a mixed economy that prioritizes workers more than capitalism does. And that when you have a country that is willing to pay people to stay home in a pandemic, that pays businesses to stay closed, that provides testing and contact tracing and universal health care, and that isn't afraid to infringe on people's freedom to infect their community with a deadly virus, then yes, the COVID numbers are going to be a fraction of the U.S.'s, even with a much larger population. So if you just read both the Western and Marxist viewpoints, you're basically going to be confronted with either the idea that Chinese people are all brainwashed slaves under the thumb of a dictator, and literally everything we hear otherwise is propaganda directly from the CCP, or that it's a country of people going to work, living mostly normal lives, they're educated in Marxism in high school, and they for the most part agree with the steps that their government is taking toward building socialism. But they also can and do criticize it constantly. I love when leftists are like, oh, Xi Jinping's a dictator. And I just send him the video of Mike Bloomberg saying like, no, yes, <laughs> he's beholden to his constituents. He's yeah. not a dictator. Xi Jinping is not a dictator. Like, yeah. If one of the worst people, you know, like says that, like, come on, man. Yep. Okay. Um, so somebody asked, why critically support socialist states when they fail on intersectionality and working class rights? Like the LGBTQ is also working class. And my response to this was, I would ask if that's actually the case. Um, I don't know that existing socialist countries have failed on intersectionality and LGBT rights. Um, I know that's something that, you know, the West typically will say about them, but I don't know that that's true. I haven't seen any evidence that I trust to that effect. Um, but I would say that things that benefit the working class overwhelmingly benefit all marginalized people since they have been traditionally yeah. kept in the working class. That's usually intentionally through discrimination. That's what makes them marginalized to begin with. 
So, for instance, a common argument I hear about the U.S. is that if we really want to help black and indigenous people of color, LGBT people, women, we should implement things like Medicare for all, since that would actually materially benefit them. And it would do more for women's reproductive rights than any amount of liberal rhetoric and pandering. So overall, I would just say to examine the sources for that claim to begin with and then see if that actually is the case. But then also, I would add that as a caveat, there may be instances of developing countries that don't have as progressive attitudes as we would like towards marginalized people. But I don't think that has anything to do with socialism. It seems to me that they just have similarly long histories of oppression of minority groups like women and LGBT people. And whatever failures you're attributing to socialism are just their inability to rectify this as quickly as you might like. I'd also be hesitant to apply Western standards to places in the global South because what we have here in the U.S. is a lot of lip service toward inclusion and equality with very little in the way of actual material support to back it up. Whereas socialist countries tend to focus on things that actually benefit workers and less on rainbow flags and feel-good talking points. Yeah, that's very well put. Yeah, and even if there are issues with intersectionalities in existing socialist countries, that doesn't mean that can't be rectified in the future with, in terms of future revolutions or future establishment of socialist countries, you know, we can learn from the mistakes that are made from the past. Like that's what makes us leftist with self-critique. We can learn from these mistakes and we can apply and learn how to go forward and how to be better each time. So this is somewhat related. Somebody asks, what are your thoughts on the Me Too movement from a leftist perspective? I said, I think it doesn't go far enough. I think it's good, but it doesn't go far enough. It's obviously good to normalize women talking about their experiences and holding abusers accountable. But at the same time, we've seen how this has been cynically co-opted by both parties when it's convenient and ignored or outright rejected when it isn't. The obvious example being Biden, when Democrats claim to believe all women, except for his many accusers, but then also things like Republicans harping on and on about Harvey Weinstein, claiming that he represents all liberals because he was close with the Clintons and he's part of the Hollywood elite but then ignoring all of Trump's many credible accusations. Uh, But more importantly, I'd say that while it's better than nothing, it's been disappointing as far as significant material gains, either legislatively or even just culturally. I can't think of any major legal changes that happened as a result, and I don't think women would say it really did much to curb toxic masculinity, to give them any more real power in preventing sexual assault or holding men accountable other than the legal recourse that already existed. And in fact, it's kind of given the right a lot of ammunition to pretend that they're under attack or that all men are being demonized. You know, this is where all their whining about cancel culture, et cetera, comes in. And even though that's obviously bullshit, it's still their narrative and they're going with it. So essentially, it's just more neoliberal, quote unquote, progress. It's a lot of feel good rhetoric, no material change, and it spurs even more reaction from the far right. And this is a really common pattern that we see as far as progress under liberal capitalism is concerned. Yeah, <laughs> you nailed it. Like you, that, that, that's yeah. like the right weaponizes like that kind of rhetoric, you know, gets the incel community and like brings them into like the white supremacy. Like it's such a quick tool that just benefits neoliberalism at the end of the day. Well, that's what's so disappointing about it is that we're not even making the progress that we want to make. And they are still acting like we've changed the world as leftists and liberals, because we now have a me too movement. We have some hashtags. We have some women who have come out about their rapists and everything. And, canceled a few guys and gotten some guys fired from like high profile jobs where they were making millions a year. Now these guys can't, they just have to retire. It's like, so we really haven't even done all the shit that we would like to do. We really haven't gotten mass justice the way we would want to. And you're still going to act like you're being persecuted as men because you can't just go out and rape women with impunity anymore. It's like, it drives me fucking nuts. And that's why neoliberal progress is so shitty because it doesn't even get the goods and you still get the reaction as if you did. 
Dude, yeah, the liberals are like, oh, we did such good work. We can now go back to brunch. As always. A, fuck men. I'm a feminist before everything else. (laughs) And and honestly, that's probably what brought me into leftism is just uh, feminism was the first ideology that, that truly grew in my heart and that I truly said, you know what? I have a history with like uh, women that I wasn't proud of and, you know, just relationships where I didn't feel like I was a good boyfriend and that kind of thing. And I wanted to grow as a person and that actually drove me to becoming a feminist and just becoming empathetic and just trying to put myself in other people's shoes that were not me is what led me to understand the plight of, you know, other uh, oppressed minorities that I would never also be able to experience the life of. And I feel like that's what really drove me into leftism. And I, yeah, I did I did have an, another point, but I don't remember what it was. <laughs> Dude, just learning empathy is such a radicalizing tool, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's super. Oh, I I do remember my point. Sorry. The American right and the American left plays the same fucking game. One side sees Trump as a credible sex offender and one side sees Biden as a credible sex offender, yet they cannot see the credits of the other. And I think that's what's unique to us on the left is if someone's a credible fucking sex offender, they're a credible sex offender regardless. Like, we take that shit fucking serious. And and just to be clear, and this is at least my opinion, if there's gray area, you take the woman's side. Plain and simple. I mean, if somebody credibly accused Bernie, I would believe him. It's like, I'm not going to just because I like the guy, I'm not going to pretend to stick my head in the sand like shit. Yeah, exactly. Another real quick one, somebody asked, what books or educators to get into that are easily digestible? I wish I had asked this one when Cosper was on still, but I always recommend A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. It's a really easy read. It doesn't only focus on the U.S. because it talks about the U.S.'s meddling in foreign countries, and it's definitely a book that will radicalize you. I actually saw a tweet somewhere, I think it was yesterday I saw it, that said basically, uh, the gist of it was, if you learn enough history, you have to either become a Marxist or a liar. And this book is a great example of that because it outlines... That's the guy! That's the guy that I was talking about coming on the podcast uh, for the the Stalin episode. That's him. He wrote that. That is a gold tweet, man. That's Plowing Stars podcast. Yeah, he went viral. That's how I connected with him, actually. Hell yeah. No, I mean, that that was so insightful, man. And it's like, it's so well put, so succinct, and it's such a good thought because it really is like, you know, this book is a great example of that because it outlines very clearly that all of history really is class struggle. And I would also just recommend real quick, anybody read anything by Michael Parenti or even just watch any of his videos on YouTube. He's amazing. Like Parenti is the goat. But yeah, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Like if you just start learning history, you can really just start reading any history that isn't told from the class perspective of the owners, like the people who were in charge at the time, anything that's not like a hagiography of like the rulers of whatever time you're reading about. If it tells any kind of working class history, that is going to turn you into a leftist if you are honest, if you're being honest about what the history actually describes, then yeah, I mean, you should be siding with the working class. Yeah. And just to kind of go, go deeper, just because you, you brought him up and that, that was his tweet, Dirk Kotzfeter. Uh, he actually, right after making that tweet where he was like, you know, if you 
study history long enough, you either become a Marxist or a liar. He made another tweet because it did actually go very viral and he doesn't have a whole lot of followers. And he said, if you just followed me because of a tweet, you should know that I'm a Marxist Leninist, a member of Reclaim Survive, which is a very impressive praxis organization that really is in the streets, um, and a big fan of Stalin and an enormous doofus. And I, of course, oh, respond... And I, of course, responded, I followed you because of a tweet. And then one of our fans said I should interview you. And I was like, who? Question mark. But then I read you're a big Stalin fan. So now we're best friends. And he said, uh, happy to do an interview. That's great. Yosef, uh, oh, I never can remember. I never can pronounce Stalin's middle name. So I'm not even going to oh, attempt yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. He says he truly connects us all. And then I was like, we'll be in touch. We'll do a Stalin episode. And that's kind of how that came about. Dude, I can't wait for that shit. That's going to be great. I had no uh, idea that was that's awesome. Yeah, that that's him. He wrote that. Plowing Stars podcast, baby. Fuck yeah, dude. Um, all right, so then I will wrap it up with the last one. This one, when I answered this one, it felt like a good kind of ending spot to be on. Um, so someone asks, how can I prevent the truth that leftism reveals from making me more hopeless and depressed? And to tie this in with another question somebody asked, what can I do in a country like America for the cause? Um, and I think these both tie in well together. So my response was, and it's going to sound trite, you know, we should probably institute a rule where we drink every time I tell people to get active and organize. But that's basically what it is. Just get involved with real life leftism and less in the online stuff. We're going to sound like broken records, telling people to join their local organization and get involved in the community. Not to mention sound like absolute hypocrites telling people to spend less time online, but it's still the truth. Yeah. Social media is designed to make you outraged, to feel depressed, to sell you products by making you feel inadequate. And that's all of advertising. And social media is just one big marketing machine. But the antidote to this is to work with other people in real life, especially if you can do something where you can see the immediate effects and how it helps people. If you hold a food drive and you give food to people who need it, if you organize with a tenants union and get any kind of win against some predatory landlords, if you work with a labor union and you help people get even slightly better pay and working conditions, if you organize with a political action group and get some bills passed in your town that help people, or even better, if someone from that group wins an election, even a small one, that stuff matters. It helps people. It makes their lives better in real material ways. And it will also help you understand that the internet isn't real life. And more people think like we do, then you've probably been led to believe. And they most likely wouldn't call it communism or socialism or even leftism but they will almost always agree with the things that you're doing if they don't have to associate it with those words that they've been led to be scared of. Yeah. Yeah. You hit it pretty well. I'll say personally as a leftist with major depression and, you know, like past suicidal attempts, the joke answer is my hatred for the bourgeoisie is what keeps me from being <laughs> hopeless and depressed. <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's more, it's a lot more than that. You know, like every time, like, like you're saying, like get offline, I was radicalized after like my last suicide attempt and that's when I started like going online and everything. And now it's great for me, you know, interacting with all these people, like reaching and radicalizing people, engaging in conversations with tons of people I never would have met before, you know, asking me questions and everything. And it just gives me hope, you know, like getting the message out there, you know, making people aware and it, it helps me keep going actually. You know, like, yeah, you learn the horrors of capitalism and the reality of the world, and it's fucking depressing. But when you have a conversation about it and you turn somebody, you know, it gives you a little bit of hope. Yeah, I mean, it's going to sound like, you know, really 
just really up our own asses to say that like but like the group chats that we have like we have several group chats we have our discord and everything and those help a lot like there was a long time in my life where i really just thought i was crazy because i think the way that i do i think that like there's something kind of fundamentally wrong with the world and the way it operates and the way that most people are exploited for profit and we're all just working our lives away to serve these few people at the top even when you talk to people in real life they will also have kind of a general idea that it's wrong but if you don't have the words to explain to them why and again, even if you just avoid the scary terms like proletariat and all the communist words that we talk about, you can get through to them with it, but they won't always get there on their own because they've been brought up in the system and they've been brought up to think that it's just the way that it is. There's no other alternative. They can't avoid it. And that's just life. And so they kind of all passively accept it. And it's really depressing to encounter that, especially if you don't like if you can't just make yourself OK with that and you're dealing with all these people in your life who are. Like that will fuck with you. It will absolutely fuck with you and make you depressed and make you feel like an outsider. But one of the best things is being able to talk to other leftists. And since I've found leftism and I'm able to see things through that lens, it really helps a lot. And then, like you said, just being able to talk to other people who feel the same way and you can dissect these issues and you can talk about them. It definitely helps a lot. And it's, it's a big thing. So, I mean, online is both good and bad. It's, it's good if you can find a community of leftists. And I'm glad that you know, we've done that and I hope we can provide that for some other people. I know other people in the group chat and discord have said that it helps them a lot too. So that makes me really happy is all. Yeah. It definitely helps me out a lot. Like being able to talk to people because you know, I don't run into a lot of leftists in my day to day life. Like none of my friends really are or anything like that. And so it's nice to be able to go into like the discord or the group chat and be like, dude, what the fuck is going on? And just get positive reinforcement, you know? And not only that, just, when you're in a community of leftists, you know, everybody's so fucking helpful and so informative, you know, like it's so welcoming. Yeah. Besides the infighting. Right. (laughs) One thing I would like to add to that is just to keep in mind that education is not therapy. We all do need to take care of ourselves. And I highly recommend that we all explore various forms of self-care, community care and private care. It's not even leftism, it's history and the truth of the world. The more you learn about the world and its histories and the horrible men who inhabit it, the more you're going to side with Mother Nature, who will likely destroy all of us, hopefully sooner than later. Uh, (laughs) um, My recommendation, take it slow when it gets too real. Take some time off if you need. Uh, Focus on yourself, your friends, your family. That's one reason we add such a heavy dose of comedy to the podcast. You know, if you can't laugh about this shit, then that only leaves crying. And I think most of us, you know, have have our issues we have to work through. And it's just important to recognize when you when you need a break and, and you need some time on yourself. Definitely like what you guys are saying. It is helpful to have others in the leftist community to talk to and grow with. But, you know... You, there are other things within your brain you have to maintain and nurture besides just political ideologies. Yeah. No, very well said. She's a really good point. Um, it, you know, I, I have a hard time. I, I'm not like prone to depression myself. Uh, I mean, that kind of happened more when I was a teenager, but I think that happens to a lot of people like you know, going through puberty and stuff. But like, I haven't been subject to that for a long time. So I kind of tend to forget that as an influence and forget what that's like. Um, yeah. So it can be, you know, I can, be neglectful of that but that is a good point to make and i think it's something that people should really take to heart yeah 
You lucky bastard, you. <laughs> I mean, there, there's got to be some reason I like to drink so much. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm assuming, that's probably de- depression manifesting itself in some other way, but whatever. Yeah. Come to my world where there's therapy and dialectical behavior therapy and cognitive <laughs> behavioral therapy. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely, it just helps to talk to people online. And I will say, like, it's going to sound real stupid again, but like, finding leftism has definitely helped with the way that I interact with people online because. I remember it was always so frustrating to be like a liberal and to have to defend liberal politicians when they were doing obviously shitty things or just not getting anything good done ever. And then like to fight with Republicans and they always seem to be winning. They always seem to have all the power plays and all the cards in their deck and everything. And it just sucked. And being a leftist is so much fucking better. It's just so much fucking better because you actually have the correct position on everything. You can criticize both left and right for when they fail and you just have a better position and a real consistent it's just the objectively moral position like that's what i tell people when they ask me like why am i left to something because it's the only morally justifiable position it's the only thing you can really be where you can be consistent and stick with your morals as a human being and not have to like compromise to defend some kind of like asshole like joe biden or some shit the worst i gotta defend is xi jinping which i don't think he's been incredibly (laughs) accused of sexual assault yet yeah I I had two more that I had prepared. You know, I know this yeah, is a fucking long oh, ass episode already. Ooh. No, you know but, what? I mean, people like the long ones. People in the Discord were saying they prefer the episodes longer than not. So. Awesome. Um, Ooh, real well, quick off of Mike's yep. point. Yeah, do it. Like, not only being leftist, you have like the moral high ground, so to say, but like the immortal science of Marxism just makes you right. You know, this scientific approach that is Marxism. Big facts. Big like, facts. there's nothing else that has that kind of scientific approach based to its ideology, you know? Everything else is just, uh, we'll throw some shit and try to explain it, you know? Yeah. Nah, with Marxism, you got it legit. Like, so if you love fucking arguing, dude, be a Marxist. Yeah. No, I mean, history just keeps on proving us right. Like, current history, contemporary history, continues to prove Marxism right because it's behaving exactly the way he fucking predicted 200 years ago. We had Sterling. Yeah, I told so, you, motherfuckers. I, I completely agree, <laughs> and I think that kind of goes back to the quote: "Like the more you learn, if you really do learn both sides, right and left, the more you realize you're either a Marxist or a fucking liar." Like, yep. <laughs> what a great quote! No wonder it went fucking viral. I wish I, I would have came yeah, up dude. with it. Um, <laughs> but one of the questions is: Who would do the unwanted jobs? And this is something we hear all the fucking time and this question arises due to a few factors but let's focus on the most important one which is under capitalism we have a very strange way of weighing the most important jobs that should be compensated the most people assume communism must mean everyone is compensated and treated completely equal which sounds great on paper but is not how communism or socialism has ever actually experienced it let us remember an important quote from each according to his ability to each according to his needs Marx did not say from each according to his ability to each equally. He's giving away a secret here, which is communism not only can favor those more in need, but perhaps even favor those more willing to give. So when you ask a question like, if everyone is compensated the same, why would someone clean toilets instead of manage a bookstore? You miss the most important factor, which is people don't have to be compensated equally. 
For example, again, the USSR is our goddamn gold standard here, but there were obviously those willing to go above and beyond what was expected of them, be it outperforming their assigned duties or even taking on work that most others did not prefer to do, you know, that was just assumed to be, you know, bad work. Like, again, cleaning toilets, like I was saying as an example. They called them Stakhanovites in the USSR. That was the Russian word for it. And they enjoyed the fruits of their extra labor for being willing to either perform additional duties or even jobs others did not want to do. Thinking about work in this way of a, you know, quote, if this job is harder or simply very unpleasant compared to other jobs, shouldn't those be willing to do it be better compensated, end quote, also tends to reframe what jobs we deem more important than others. Perhaps the person cleaning the toilet is more important than we initially realized, and perhaps he should be better rewarded than he actually is under capitalism. Yeah, definitely people need to check their biases when it comes to people's jobs in that regard you know like one of the tweets that i always love to see is the uh like if you think a coal miner isn't selling his body more than a sex worker is then you're exactly Mm yeah you know like so one might think that cleaning toilets is gross because you're dealing with shit and piss but i also think it's gross to sit in a fucking cubicle for fucking eight hours so like who's right in that scenario to uh I think it's pretty gross to be fake happy all the time when you're like working in customer service and you have to be super cheerful when you don't fucking feel like it to people who are rude to you because they can be like. Yeah, exactly. I think it's fucking gross that cashiers don't get to fucking sit on stools while they work. You know, what are we going to define as an unwanted job? You know, maybe need to look more into our internal biases of what we think is credible and what's not. Yeah. I also kind of want to mention, I I was glad you brought up that question because I wanted to get to that one and I didn't, but, um, there is a lot to be said for the amount of writing that people have done on what communist societies would look like. And people have differing opinions. Like people have been writing about this shit for hundreds of years and people have all kinds of different ideas as to how you would structure labor, how you would structure the way work is done and, you know, compensation for that work. And people have different ideas about it. And I just haven't really gotten that far into it because it just seems like it's putting the cart before the horse because we're not even close to getting to that point that we have to worry about that yet. Like first we got to worry about defeating capitalism. That's kind of where I get stuck on because that's what I'm more concerned with because that's what I'm dealing with in my everyday life. But I mean, as far as I know that there are people who, whose answer to that would be that, you know, lots of people could do those same jobs, but maybe they just don't have to do them for eight hours a day, five days a week. And therefore the unwanted job is not so bad anymore. Maybe you're only doing it for like, four hours a day, maybe we're only doing it for four hours a week. And now instead of, you know, one person having that job and having to do it for that many hours so they can make a living, now everyone's basic needs are met. And that job is now divided up amongst 20 people. And everyone has a job that pays them enough to live on. And they only have to do that undesirable activity for a few hours a week for an amount that is manageable that anybody could tolerate. Like, fuck, yeah. I clean toilets for four hours a week. That's no problem. Like, it's, yeah. it's not exactly. that big of a deal. Yeah, that's easy. You know, this kind of reminds me of like the division of labor where we separate labor and we separate the different jobs by such a degree that they're foreign to one another. And like you were saying, it would not be crazy if you worked in a factory for four hours a week or even four hours a month that you were just on toilet cleaning duty. And then that's all you had to do. 
four fucking hours a month and then you got to go back to the more pleasant work and it, it's especially it's, if you then had a society that you were proud of especially I, if you knew that you were doing that for a community that you actually had some ties to and you felt like you had some greater purpose other than that shitty job you know, no pun intended yeah yeah even marx talked about that the specialization in segregation of work and labor mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like how that is utilized by capitalists to separate us you know yeah it turns it into so many different factors when it really isn't. It really is only one of three things. How hard is the work? How unpleasant is the work? And how much education does the work take? Those are the only fucking real three factors. But the division of labor overcomplicates it to where you don't realize it's only a scale of these three fucking things. And it would honestly be so much easier to measure because it's not hard to determine cleaning toilets takes no education, takes not a lot of labor, but is very unpleasant. Working fucking machinery takes education, is labor intensive, and is pretty unpleasant. Like, it's not hard to actually weigh these things in an intelligent way that we can, you know, properly separate to the labor force, to the, to the masses. Yeah, like, I've yeah. cleaned toilets and I've roofed houses. And I'll say exactly. cleaning toilets is way fucking better. <laughs> somehow hold up a roofer higher than a janitor. I yeah. know, I know. And I, I honestly like putting shingles on houses. Like, yeah, it's a lot of labor. It's very labor. Oh, fuck the fiberglass, dude. It, it does. Oh, it, God, get, no. it gets stuck in your fingers. And if you wear gloves, you can't get the uh, fucking shingles just in place like you want them to. Absolutely. You kind of have to do it barehanded. And you're going to, for the next two weeks, have fucking fiberglass in your fingers. But I get a satisfaction when I, I put the fucking, you know, my nails in the right place and I don't overdrive. And, you know, I, I know friends who are really into hand nailing versus using a gun. I'm not. And again, I don't actively go nail roofs. That's that's only been a handful of times in my life. But the few times I have, I have enjoyed it for the artistic side of it. And I feel like if you were to take out the exploitation, people would appreciate the artistic side to all of these trades. There really is an artistic side of uh, putting shingles on a fucking roof. And to be honest, there's art in cleaning a fucking toilet the right way. Yeah, dude. Look how satisfying it is when you clean the toilet in your house. Like I know, how I clean know. it looks. You go. I, I go tell it's my girlfriend. So I'm like, yo, you, you seen that toilet, girl? <laughs> Dude, I don't stop talking about it for two days with my wife. Are you kidding me? Like, have you seen it? Look at that. Absolutely. Yeah, I bought a new toilet freshener and everything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Stone, did you have, you had another one, right, Stone? Yeah, yeah, and this one's kind of one for the group. Um, so James Otto, who's a big uh, follower of ours, he does a lot of reshares on our Twitter. His uh, Twitter is at j a triple y m o underscore, and he asked, "What is everyone's favorite bourgeois indulgence?" And for myself. It's definitely, and I hate to admit it, but it's Amazon. It's it's having those packages delivered because during a pandemic, just having the ability to limit my trips to public, you know, stores. I mean, it's been crucial to me. It really has. I hate to give Amazon money, but you know, we've talked about this many times. Your individual impact really doesn't make a difference. And if I choose to spend an extra so many hours a week to go to a store rather than use Amazon. They're beating me more than I'm beating them. There's no ethical consumption. No, I was going to say, I I like really nice coffee and really nice running socks. Same. 
You guys don't know that interview? No. No, oh. I thought you were being serious. I didn't know that yeah. was like a reference. Oh, Oh, that was like a Larry yeah. King, Larry King interview. Oh, okay. Well, that's um, why. I can't remember the uh, the actor's name. Where it was like, oh, what's your favorite like luxury? And he's like, I like really nice coffee. And it's like, you can get coffee anywhere. That's not a luxury. It's like, yeah. okay, socks. I like really nice socks. It's like everybody has socks. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but I like, I like, I'm really into socks. Like, I really like comfy running socks. Like, I like having, <laughs> I like having cozy feet. And it's like. Coffee and socks, those fuck? aren't luxuries. And he's like, okay, fine, Larry, tell me what kind of luxury should I have? He's like, private jet. He's like, Larry, I'm on DuckTales. <laughs> I, I gotta know who this was. Oh, I gotta find the video and I'll fucking send it to you guys. But yeah, as soon as you said bourgeoisie luxuries, I was like, oh, really nice coffee. That's funny. Yeah, With Comfy I, running socks. <laughs> I, I order my coffee from, uh, from a local company in Kona. Um, I've been meaning to get that from you because I'm super into coffee. Yeah, I'll have to get the brand and shoot it to you. But I like to order my whole bean from Kona, you know, on the big island of Hawaii where I grew up. And then I grind it freshly every morning and make myself a nice black cup of coffee. And it's it's wonderful. It really is. No, I was about to say, I wanted to geek out with the coffee with you sometime because like I do French press. Like I just got an AeroPress. Yeah. That thing is fucking amazing for coffee. Like that's I, the best fucking coffee I've ever had. I'd love to try that. I really need do the Aero. It's like thirty bucks for the AeroPress, man. It's fucking I amazing. I should. And it tastes that. better than a French press. It's called Kona Gold. Is the company, by the way. I did. Oh, okay. Remember that? Yeah, the AeroPress tastes better. It only makes like a single cup, though. That's the only mm-hmm. downfall. But it's like it's similar to a French press in the style but it's a lot faster like it takes me i think like two minutes to make a cup of coffee Mm. with it but yeah i grind my own beans and everything like i'm a big coffee guy hell yeah hell yeah let me try to think of what mine is i definitely order things from amazon yeah i don't know i mean are guns bourgeoisie like i don't know i have way too many i just bought another fucking gun the other day like hell no that's not bourgeoisie all right it's like, you know, going out to fucking Red Lobster once a week is fucking bourgeoisie. Fucking having to have two 2,000 thread count, you know, Egyptian cotton. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm looking at the trim work in your room, and that's certainly not bourgeoisie. <laughs> Dude, I do that myself. It's definitely not bourgeoisie. <laughs> it's just not painted yet. I just got to paint yeah, that yeah. one. I actually have to, and I got to take my router to it, and then it's all done. All good. Okay, okay. Um, I can't think of, but you know, I so I can't think of anything particularly bougie that I no, have or do. There's no way. There's nothing bougie you do. I mean, I will say this: you're sitting in a fucking lawn chair. Like, yep, yep. <laughs> that's as unbourgeois as it gets. Yeah, I'm sitting in a camping chair in a room that I redid myself. I'm trying to think, like you are fairly unbourgeois. Yeah, I think it's safe. It's safe to say you're the least bourgeois on the podcast. Dude, I play video games, but I have like a PS3 and all I play is Skyrim <laughs> and Minecraft. And those are the only games that I play. Um, I'm trying to think of yeah, what I even do with video my games is my like weakness. Like I'm recording this on a gaming laptop. Like, yeah, gaming is my thing. Um, so, I mean, I also did want to mention somebody else had asked a question that was very similar to that. Uh, they asked, can you still be a leftist and work for a major corporation? Um, and how so? And I thought that was a really good question and ties in very perfectly to this, which is to once again, just reiterate, there is no ethical consumption. We are all eating from the trash can, whether we like it or not. And your individual actions uh, not only don't do anything, 
but they are intentionally used to distract you from systemic effects of everyone's consumption. Like you could avoid meat. You could avoid buying from Amazon. You could take every ethical step you possibly could. You could make all your own clothes and go live in a fucking cabin with Ted Kaczynski. And it's not going to make one bit of fucking difference to the overall system that we're all living under. That's intentionally put in front of you as the solution because it is acceptable, non-threatening to the system and the profits of that system and to the, pe- the profits of the people who are benefiting from it. It's just a big distraction. And I'm not saying don't do all those things. Like do those things if you want, do them if it makes you feel better. It definitely can't hurt, but just don't think that you're saving the world by doing it. And the real thing that has to happen is we have to change the system from the ground up if we really want any kind of significant change. So work for whatever company you want to work for, do whatever thing you got to do. Preferably don't be a cop, but you know, do what you got to do to make a living because you're only hurting yourself if you prevent yourself and make your own lifestyle harder for yourself. Absolutely. And if you can find a good enough corporate job that allows you to engage in mutual aid and direct action, like even more power to you, man, like utilize the capitalist system to further our comrade goals, you know? Yeah. And actually, it's funny because that actually sounds like a very neo-lib take. Like I've seen some neo-libs make me want to pull my hair out by because they'll say something like, oh, it's actually better if you work a really high paying corporate job because then you're donating money to charity and you're actually a better leftist than the Marxists. And it makes me want to just murder. But there is something to be said for if you have a corporate job that allows you some free time to actually do some direct action, that's probably better than not doing it. So. Yeah. yeah, and even more than just that is what I always tell people is just in your day-to-day actions, you can speak volumes to people, being nice, helping out your community and your neighbors, you know, showing people what a communist is, you know, that's going to speak more volumes than what your job title is. Yeah, I completely agree. Like as someone who's in this situation, I mean, I work for, I'm not going to name the company, but I work for a company that I promise every one of you know by name and have since you were a child. And we live in a capitalist world. The United States is a capitalist country. It's impossible for me to be a communist within a capitalist country and, you know, not take part in capitalism. So I found a job that I do enjoy. I found it for a company that um, I don't hate with every fiber, you know, in my bones and that I, I do even take pride to a degree in working for. So yeah, the the job I have allows me to pay my bills and I I can, you know, do things that are more important to me, but you know, through the several years leading up to this last job where I did finally come work for a a larger corporation, you know, I, I did find myself kind of digging further and further into the uh financial debt, which I, you know, our country, our system is designed to push you into that. So, I am kind of using the capitalist system to dig myself out of debt and and get myself in a more comfortable position and it's kind of like what mike was saying there's no ethical consumption under capitalism you got to focus on what makes you comfortable and what makes you happy and what gets you to a position in which you do have the ability to take part and you know direct action and and join other organizations and that's why i am so careful with you know the different things i say online with things i do in public boss man may one day come knocking (laughs) It just touches on what we've been saying is there's no ethical consumption into capitalism. You know, we are all eating from the trash can of ideology. Exactly. But there is one you cannot do under 
any circumstance. I don't give a fuck. And that's be a fucking cop. If you were a yeah. cop, it is the one fucking trade that makes you a traitor, that makes you scum. And, you know, as someone who grew up with, you know, several people that I considered good cops, um, if you're listening, Chip, you're not a good cop. Like, I'm, I'm sorry over the years. I let it blind me that you're a nice person, but you've chosen a shit profession and you should be ashamed of it. While we were on tonight, I just got banned permanently from our police because uh, <laughs> they were ranting and raving about the new bill that passed um, to hold police accountable. It didn't even pass the Senate and there's no way it's going to. Yeah. But it's that thing that's like moving towards removing qualified immunity. Mm. And somebody was like, oh, man, if this goes through, you're going to see cops retire or quit on mass. And I just replied, yeah, right. Like you guys are going to do that. Then you'd have to get real jobs. Give me a break. <laughs> and yeah. <they> banned me. <laughs> Cambridge. In Massachusetts, the Cambridge Police Department, like when Black Lives Matter protests were at its height, was like, oh, if you remove qualified immunity, Cambridge will turn into like a purge or some shit. It's like, you're just going to be that like mask off with the shit? Like, okay, guys. And yeah, and anybody who's police, you'll get laid way more as a firefighter. Just saying. No fucking shit. Yeah, way more ethical. It's a better job, too. Like, you literally just hang out in this sick-ass, like, clubhouse where you all just play video games. And eat chili. Yeah, you. (laughs) most of the time they've got a dope-ass in-house gym. Like, you literally, you weightlift, you play Grand Theft Auto, and then when shit goes down, you go and save fucking lives. Like, you do the shit cops think they're signing up for. Firefighters rule. Cops suck my fucking dick. (laughs) That's the official podcast stance. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. All right, let's wrap it up there. We will uh, get to some plugs and then we will just uh, while we were talking, I counted the amount of questions we answered. I think 14 or 15 tonight. We have 25 more left and that's not including any that Ooh. we've gotten since I put together the pace bin for tonight. So we have at least one more, probably two or three more episodes worth of questions that we could do this on. So we will definitely be doing this again, hopefully sometime soon. Uh, this is just kind of a, an episode that we did on the fly because we weren't sure if we were going to record this week. But yeah, so this is definitely something we will be doing again. I liked this. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, preview for next uh, next questions episode, whenever that is, is because we got one of the questions during while we were recording was someone wanted to, us to explain the labor theory of value. Cosper said he'll oh, take Jesus. care of it on the next one. So. Yeah, that's a, that's something I should also note is that we answered all the ones that I thought we could get to fairly quickly, and it still took us three hours to answer the fifteen we answered. So I can <laughs> right. imagine what's going to take us to do all these other ones. Like people are asking, like, uh, can you explain dialectics for dummies? Explain dialectics <laughs> and historical materialism. Uh, somebody asks, I can't even um, ask that answer that for Discord channels that ask it for verification half the time. I'm wrong. Asks, <laughs> is there, is I just suck a- at explaining it. <laughs> They said, is there a place for white leaders in the revolution? How do you balance relinquishing and leveraging privilege? Uh, someone asks, are we doomed to repeat certain cycles for the eternity of humanity? These God are all like really fucking good questions, these are, but these are going to take us a while. Like, can we shout out the motherfuckers asking us questions? Like, these are genuine solid questions. Yeah. Yeah, I actually don't have um, the names of the people who asked them, otherwise I would. But yeah, I mean, these are le- yeah, they're legit questions. Yeah, I thought we were going to um, get softballed a lot of them. No, dude, they just straight fastballs right down the center, each one. Dude, I was kind of hoping. I said, the baby leftists, what are your baby leftist questions? And they throw this shit at us. Like, <laughs> yeah, right? Oh, yeah, thanks, guys. All right, Jeez, so let's do Christ. plugs. Uh, Sterling, go ahead and plug the Twitter since you've been killing it on Twitter lately. You've been posting some really good ones. 
Turn leftist pod, baby. Come on there, shit post with me. Um, I'll I'll retweet some of your shit too. Fuck it. Yeah, dude, you've been really posting some funny shit on there. So power to you, Ward. Go ahead and plug your Instagram. Yeah, I got two uh, at Ward Lolly W A R D L A W L E Y, and my backup, which I also post on actively, is uh, Millennial Leftist. Common spelling. Hell yeah. Uh, I'll plug Jaron's website. That's J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. You can pick up his book. I've been reading through it slowly but surely, and it's great. And he's got another one in the works that should come out fairly soon. And um, yeah, we'll plug the SRA as always. I haven't played that in a while. Join the SRA if you haven't already. And then, yeah, just check out our link tree. That's link tree slash turn leftist. Join our Discord. Like we mentioned in the last episode, that shit is popping. And we'd love to have anybody who wants to come and talk about leftist stuff with other leftists just to come hang out and have a good time. It's been really fun lately. Go ahead, Ward. Yeah, and hit us up in the Discord if you guys have any, uh, anybody who's like listening to this and thought of any questions to hit us up for uh, our follow-up questions episode. Yeah. I would like to tag just another uh, new comrade, uh, Rara. Um... God, what was her, the other person on the on her podcast? I can't remember. But they have a podcast called Hot Girls Agenda, and that's another uh, podcast that I've been talking to about doing a collab here in the near future. Um, but definitely super cool. That That's one of the people from that uh, DSA hangout that I joined that was like just hilarious, but I had a good time. Uh, but she ended up turning out to be way more you know leftist than democratic socialist and they have a podcast and it's actually really fucking entertaining it's from uh you know all female host uh super comical they're natural speakers definitely check out hot girl agenda it's it really is a lot of fun and now that you said that it reminds me um we got a shout out on the anger podcast a-n-g-r uh, it's called the Anger Podcast with Sophia Syntax. She gave us a shout out because she she has a really short podcast, usually like just a uh, twenty minutes episodes. It was good. I listened to it. I subscribed, and it's entertaining. And uh, she gave us a shout out for our IWW episode because she was talking about unions, and she recommended people go check that one out. So Very it must cool. be impacting some people. So that's good to hear. And then also, since uh, you reminded me, I just went on the Left Shelf podcast. That's another one that I, I like. They talk uh, about books from a leftist perspective and I had a good time with them. And tomorrow I'm going to go on the Caitlin's Conspiracy Corner podcast and we're going to talk about the inauguration of Donald Trump on March 4th. That obviously didn't fucking happen today. Um, but this episode that we're recording right now isn't going to come out for like two weeks. So by the time anybody hears this, the, that episode will be out for anybody to listen to. Unless anybody has anything else, we can wrap it up there. That's good. Well, cool. in three, two... One zero. We have officially hit our first three-hour recording session. Oh <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say this definitely had to have been like our longest episode. It, it, oh, yeah. it hit. We officially hit the three-hour mark. Even if this episode, after editing, might be a little shorter, just understand. Uh, we we just put in a solid fucking three hours for the comrades. Please share this shit. <laughs> we tend to lose about thirty percent, so this will probably end up being like a two-hour episode solidly. Yep. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Please recommend it to your friends if you like it, if you know anyone who would think it funny or interesting. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Hope to see you again soon. See you next week. Peace. Later.